Everybody's good. Everybody's feeling good. Everybody's feeling good. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm feeling all right. I uh, I just downed a uh, a Red Bull, which, to be honest, I think there should. Uh, I want to do the American remake of another round, and it's just about me destroying my liver with uh, with energy drinks and just getting more and more hyped as the days go on, um, and then just crashing. That's my that's my plan. Did you see another round, Kyle? No, I I, I didn't. I know that uh, uh, the director's nominated for the Oscar, but I don't this, know anything about it. Another round is a very kyle movie um and with that yeah and with that let's get into it let's talk about that we are uh, we're rolling let's get going uh everybody listening thank you for joining us this is a different kind of episode than we normally do this is uh we thought we'd take a little uh, step aside from the national film registry and these films that are uh have been in the canon for decades and we would talk about this year's oscar nominees uh, do any of them have the potential to uh, be in the film canon, be inducted into the film registry? Who knows? There's at least one I'm kind of hoping one day will be. Uh, so we are going to talk about this year's Oscar nominees. Uh, Kyle has watched uh, virtually all the Best Picture nominees. Tom's watched all the Best Picture nominees. Uh, I've watched every nominee in every category because you can tell that the waning days of quarantine are going well for me. Um, but everybody's here. Uh, Tom is here. Hello, fellas. How's things? Uh, how's things in uh, the world of uh, your quarantining? Other than I know Mike's uh, syllabus of pathologically watching every Oscar movie, and uh, he's now got the pathological Pixar watching with his uh, significant other. How's things down in uh, America's asshole, Kyle? <laughs> it's um it's going okay uh surprisingly uh this week was the first week that i finally uh qualified to get vaccinated down here uh, and i quite literally uh booked an appointment the day before uh walked right in was the first uh vaccine of the day and walked right out uh i didn't know whether to laugh or cry uh because i stressed for so long trying to get one um and just how easy it was to get one uh and how long it took for me to become eligible it was just overwhelming emotions. Uh, so outside of that, um, you know, feeling feeling pretty good. It's good to talk to you guys again. Uh, looking forward to, uh, you know, just been catching up on on just movies in general, and uh, you know, and uh, enjoying the, the the sunshine here until it gets you know super you know asshole sweaty, and then uh, you know it's that unbearable heat that just makes you want to you know hate life. We should say to the listeners so they know we've been. Um... You know, you've been hearing us at a regular pace for weeks, um, but that's because we backlogged a lot. Uh, the three of us have not actually been on mic together in months. Yeah. This is our first time on months. Uh, in months. Uh, we spent the first little while admiring how the layout of the software we used to record has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very fancy now. Um, and as a result, since we haven't talked to each other in a while, we haven't recorded an episode in a while, this uh, episode's going to be a little more conversational. And we are going to be talking about the Oscar films of 2021. There's a good chance spoilers may come up. So if you are still waiting on watching these films, you know, you've got, by the time this comes out, about a week until the awards, I believe. So, you know, maybe hold off on this one. You're welcome to come back to it. We won't be upset. Uh, if current day movies are not of interest to you, cool. Stick around. Next week, we're doing Buster Keaton's The General. Uh, from the 20s, that's about as far from current as we could get, and we have a good guest for that. And then Citizen Kane the week after that. 
So we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program. But for now, we're going to talk modern films, which is not something we have uh, done before on this version of the show. Uh, I want to preface this right before we get into it, uh, which is reminding everybody, um, you know, we come into these normally with a lot of research uh, on the films that we're talking about when they're these classic films. And we're talking about them as their place in the canon. This episode, we're talking about more recent films that have a lot more emotional charge to them. Uh, you know, a lot of people have strong feelings one way or the other. I want to stress what we're saying here about these movies are just personal opinions. We, it's not attacks, and we certainly don't uh, look down on you if you feel differently about any of these films than we do. Uh, if you have a strong case for why we're wrong about something, I listen. I'm, you can you can at me on Twitter. Or uh, you can at Kyle, or you can write. Uh, no, no, or you, no could, you cannot at me. <laughs> or you could write a three-page notes app list of all the things we got wrong. You know, these are all ways to respond to errors on podcasts. Um, yes, if you've ever wanted to be on our show and you haven't been invited yet, please personally attack us. But uh, to start, and Kyle's going to kind of take charge, guide us through the films. We're going to talk about each film uh, up for best picture. And then we're going to start ranking nominees and get into all that. Uh, but Kyle, did you, did you have anything you want to say up top or ask up top? Uh, just a quick uh, question, because when I think about, obviously, the uh, in, insane year that we have all had, um, I don't think anything is as um, stark of a reflection of just how different um, the world was for me uh, than looking at the Oscars. Uh, from last year to this year, because uh, if we were here a year ago uh, talking about uh, the best picture nominees, I'd have been all over this. Uh, watched them all ahead of time, pretty much knew which ones were going to be uh, nominated ahead of time or had a good idea. Um, I had never heard of any of the best pictures coming into this and feeling like I spent the last like couple of weeks playing catch up and everything was just very jarring, I, I guess. And so, um, Outside of outside of that, um, from a general standpoint, how do you feel about um, this list, um, broadly speaking, uh, compared to last year? For me, uh, oh, do you want to go first, Tom? Um, yeah, I sh I guess so. Um, so for the best picture uh, category, you know, honestly pretty good selection in my opinion mm -hmm. there's only one movie in here that i don't like we'll get to it um uh but <clears throat> i think everything else of the uh eight selections so i think seven are all good um to varying degrees obviously um i will say in comparison to 2020 um i think the overall grade like the curve is is much lower because I don't think there's a single bunch in here that can measure up to uh, The Irishman or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Parasite, the winner. Um, but I think, for the most part, uh, these all, for the most part, fit in that um, Ford v. Ferrari, Marriage Story, Little Women, 1917 ca like category of, these are all good. And I'm glad they're getting recognized. Um in terms of our show, I absolutely do not see a single thing in this in this selection uh, getting uh, canonized in 10 years or plus. Um, I just think there'll all be movies people talk about and go, yeah, they, some, some of these were good. Maybe this was bad. 
Uh, Aaron Sorkin can go fuck himself. <laughs> um, uh, Gary Oldman, more like Gary Oldham. Hey, um, what the fuck is wrong with me? Um, I I just like that we had so many discussions going into this of like let's not. You know, let's not uh, be too harsh on the films or people who like them. <laughs> and so what I like is that Tom went, okay, I'm going to get all my monologue jokes out of at the top. We're not going to no, have a host for even... the Oscars this year, so I'm going to start doing <laughs> Billy Crystal bits. Well, because um, it's not even – it's not even, like, me saying it. Like, like uh, the, the what, there's maybe, like, one or two movies in here that aren't fucking divisive that has people yeah, going no, – cr- it's, it's The Father and, like, Sound of Metal, and everything else is like, you motherfucker! I will fucking kill you! <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I agree with you. And here's what I'll say, um, to One thing I love about this year – I really like the nominees. This is a strong bunch of nominees. Uh, I think the worst I could say about them, even the one I don't love, the worst I could say about them is, like, if it wins Best Picture, my response will be, yeah, I guess. You know? There's nothing... Like, last year, there was there was at least one film that was nominated that I despised. Um, and in most years, there's a, there's one or two that you look at and go, God, I hope this doesn't fucking win. Like, I'll be so upset. And, you know, 2018 bore out for that to be the case with Green Book. But, you know, like, you have those ones where you're like, God, I hope this doesn't win. I hope this doesn't... This year, like I said to Kyle, you know, I was saying to Kyle before we started, like, there are certain years where the movie that wins Best Picture is fine. Um, It's pretty good. The only bummer about it is that when you're looking at the list of Best Picture winners, that one kind of... You get to it and go, yeah, I guess. Like, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too particular pointing fingers. Everybody's got their preferences. But, like, you know, Tom, you know we've had this plenty of times where there are years where it wins Best Picture that year, and out of that crop of nominees, you go, yeah, that's the one you go with. But then when you're looking at, like, the pantheon of Best Picture winners, the things like Lawrence of Arabia, you know, and uh, and Casablanca and all of these classics, and then you get to something from recent years where you're like, yeah. Okay. Chicago. Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, okay. Like, they were good in their time. The The only bummer is kind of just like, okay, this isn't quite that. They just didn't have that this year. This is a little bit one of those where it's a case of, in 2018, the, the Green Book year, um, I think Black Panther is extraordinary. I really like Black Klansman. I really like Star is Born. But it was one of those things where you kind of felt like there's nothing that's so bright, shining gold, like, holy cow. Um, uh, in some cases, I mean, I have a film I really loved from this year, but like, you know, 2015, even though it didn't win Mad Max Fury Road gets nominated. And you're like, Oh, holy cow, this happened. Parasite last year. You know, you have those. Um, but overall I'm not, I, I like the nominees this year. This is actually, and even in most categories, this is a very good Oscar year. And better than that, there's a lot of stuff that got nominated this year that I think would not have gotten nominated in previous years had the major studios been bringing out all their big guns and putting out all their classic Oscar play movies. You know, a lot of the things that crack the the best pictures this year, you know, you got to wonder in a different year, would they have gotten, would they have had a chance? There's some weird stuff in here and I'm very happy that there's weird stuff in here. Um, We wouldn't get it otherwise. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's basically one We'll get to it. I think there's one big, true, like, obnoxious um, omission. Yes, of, the of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I th- it's one that we're all going to look back. I mean, we're all looking at it now, and everyone yeah. was like, what the fuck are they doing? 
And, but it, it, further down the line, we'll continue to look on it and go, Jesus, they re- even in a year where they could have, they had a weird selection because of the pandemic screwing up release schedules and everything. They could have been ballsy and they were ballsy. Like you said, some yeah. of these things would have never been nominated, no. even with the expanded pool, even in shit. Like in some of these categories where they weren't nominated for best picture, but then you got this nom for things that they just completely, completely fucking whiffed in this yeah. one with this one movie. Um, you know, look, but, there, and you're right, Tom. There are there are a lot of big swings and a lot of stuff that wouldn't get nominated. Of course, you still have some safe choices. Like everybody knew Borat Two was racking up two nominations. <laughs> Yes, if everyone knew that in the year with two Sasha Baron Cohen movies that the <laughs> forerunner was Borat subsequent movie film. Um Aaron what Sorkin a, do, returning to the court or Aaron Sorkin returning to the courtroom drama was not the front runner for <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen Oscar nominations. So um, with that said, let's uh I don't I don't want to dilly dally too much more. Let's let's get into this uh, film by film. Um uh, Kyle, what do you want to start us off with? And we'll try and be brief. This might be an unwieldy episode for listeners. Uh, again, come back next week. We'll be doing Buster Keaton. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, what do we want to start with, Kyle? Let's start with uh, Let's start with Judas and the Black Messiah. It's It's funny with Judas and the Black because I was gonna say uh, one of the things I loved about this year um, is the fact that even though it didn't feel like any movie really had as much oomph behind it because there was no box office, there was no this. Um, this is the most accessible Oscars in a very long time. And uh, I make a habit of seeing every nominee in every category every year. It's my thing. I kind of love doing it. Uh, and not just out of an obsessive thing, um, but also like, it's really great to to try and have to hunt these things down. Uh, especially living in New York, you can always find these movies, but sometimes you have to go to a cinema you haven't been to before. You have to go to a different borough. Sometimes you even have to go to a different state. Um, and that's fun for me. Uh, it's a little quest. Um, but other these have all been streaming. These are all available to anyone who wants to find them, uh, with the exception of the most bizarre thing in the world, which is Judas and the Black Messiah, which was on HBO Max for a month until literally the day before the Oscar nominations came out. And now they took it down. And if you are somebody like uh, my grandmother, who's very into movies, and you want to watch this film, good luck. Good luck. We don't know. Uh, you can't find it. Um which is a shame because this is one of my favorite nominees this year. Uh, I think Judas and the Black Messiah is uh, such a uh, an engrossing film. I mean, obviously the Daniel Kaluuya performance is incredible. I think the fact that it is getting a a generation, multiple generations of people from baby boomers, millennials, to understand who Fred Hampton was and to understand the complicated dynamics of the Black Panthers in in American culture and particularly. Uh, the uh, behavior of the FBI toward the Black Panthers in our culture um, is great. But on top of that, I think this could have been a straightforward biopic. And I've heard some people wish that it was. And I disagree with that vehemently. I love the idea of using the the Christ narrative to mirror what happened to Fred Hampton. Um, I mean, you know, because it's not just a title. You do have moments. I mean, framing... Uh, one of the last moments that uh, Lakeith Stanfield and Den Kluge have together as the Last Supper, you know, and and him backing out in the corner. There's so many visual allegories to to the Christ narrative in it. Um, incredible performances. Uh, Dominique Fishback's great. Lakeith Stanfield's great. This, you know, I love the script. I, I I really enjoyed everything about this film because it 
did more than just be the traditional biopic uh, while still exploring, while still exploring uh, an underserved chapter of American history and not feeling like it was written by uh, somebody who had just read a Howard Zinn book and decided to write a script. There's real care in this. There's real passion to it. There's real nuance. Um, yeah. Great performances. Uh, great. Well, well done film. I really, really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, like I said, there's not, a, I don't, the, the ratio here is pretty good and I like Judas and the Black Messiah a lot. I think it will end up, uh, when we end up ranking this, it'll be kind of high on my best picture rankings. Uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. The performances are great. Um, I think the, the thing that a lot of people don't, uh, mention that really, um, connected with me in terms of structuring this movie is, is that it plays as a, a kind of, it starts off as like a prototypical, um, undercover cop kind of story. Um, but it does everything to subvert everything you think an undercover cop story is going to like get to where like Ron O'Neill gets uh, submerged in this group and he starts like sympathizing with them. And then you got all this tension. Is he going to be found out? Like where does his allegiances lie? Where I think it's pretty smart that the movie never um, tries to humanize him in that way. It all like right from the jump in throughout the rest whole movie. It's like, no, he's a selfish piece of shit who got this good man killed because he has no spine and doesn't stand up for anything other than his own well-being. And even if there's moments where he's like, Oh, I'm kind of tense about this. It's still just like, no, you just, you just let a man, you just led the cops to drug a man and execute him in his bed because you're a coward. And, um, uh, I, so I thought those, that structural, um, storytelling was uh pretty smart uh i think yeah pretty good movie um i feel like this is one that in any other year could have ended up being in it because it is a socially conscious movie it is a biopic even if it is um doing things in a subversive smart smarter way than some other biopics tend to do it but um i'm glad it's here and uh it's a good movie and uh uh i'm surprised surprised to find out that warner brothers is fucking up their uh streaming <laughs> categories uh yeah i mean that that ending um you know i mean obviously if you don't know history if you don't know about fred hampton like my parents watched it they didn't know um you know it's shocking um but either if you know history or on your second viewing that moment feels so akin to that uh uh don't that picture look dusty scene in in jesse james almost you know there's none of the regret on the part of the killer um but there is just this thing of this slow like time feels like it slows down as you know like i'm gonna witness this like this is i'm going to see this horribling uh kyle did you see judas the black messiah i did yeah this was one of the uh the more recent ones that i watched um i i, I enjoyed it a lot um obviously uh harping off of what you guys have already said daniel kaluuya's performance is riveting it's energizing um, I don't know. You know the supporting uh, performance he gives. I was I was just about to say. I'm like I don't know how you can put on that type of performance and look at me in the eye and say, yeah, that's that's a that's a best supporting actor nomination. Like if you well, can't get I think, I think nomination, nobody can. I think that's a fair supporting performance. I think the the Lakeith Stanfield nomination for supporting is insane. I think that's crazy. But then again, I've seen the arguments that Brad Pitt's really a lead in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know these things happen. To me, I think the fact that that story is centered on Stanfield. It, it's Stanfield's story. I get Kalia being up for supporting actor. I think he's extraordinary, and I think he's a lock for for that award. I hope to God so. He's been winning all the precursors, but I, 
you know, that one I get. That nomination I get. Lakeith being in supporting is is bonkers. Especially because they ran him as lead. So I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I don't... I mean, the Academy... I mean, listen, the Academy fucked some stuff up this year. Yeah. Some, like, obvious where you just go, what what, what, what are they doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you. I'll leave you with one little fun fact here that I was, I was, I was looking up. Do you guys know that when they were still trying to make it a biopic, do you know the two actors that they had in mind for, for Fred Hampton? It's a. This is this is back when they were pitching the idea to Netflix and A twenty four back in twenty fourteen, and they were looking at either O'Shea Jackson Jr. or Jaden Smith. Or who was the second one? Jaden Smith. Well, you know. Nope. You know, these things <laughs> these things get floated all the time. So, so anyway, look at look at look at how far we've how far we've come in six years. Um, it's it's anyway. so yeah, it's so funny. We did our um when we did our Oscar episode on our old podcast back in the um in twenty seventeen, uh I remember being I, going on a screed, Tom will remember about how I think Daniel Kulia's performance in Get Out is extraordinary. Uh, he sees such an incredible talent, and the Academy will never recognize such a subtle performance. And then he got nominated, and I was so happy. It yep. was amazing. And, I, and now he's almost certainly going to win. Um, so, hooray. All right. Um, next up on our list, we have Mank. Tom, what do you think of Mank? Mank, uh, this is not the one of the list I don't like. I like Mank a lot. Um, uh, Finch is one of our masters, uh, although he falls into this uh, very annoying habit of making a um, widely uh, approved masterpiece and then following it up with a movie that will divide everyone until the ends of time. Uh, everyone who likes the game, Panic Room, uh uh girl with the dragon tattoo and now mank uh it's, it's a war that will never end um the uh, ostensibly the movie about the making of citizen kane and uh the man who wrote it herman mankowitz uh and kind of giving him his uh slice of uh time his time in the sun getting some uh credit for that movie um it's actually more really about the um political climate of the time and uh, an artist's responsibility in the political climate and what they're supposed to do and then how they react to it. And yeah, there's some Citizen Kane stuff in there and the guy who sounds an awful lot like Orson Welles, but absolutely looks nothing like him. Uh, this is a movie that's been dividing people to say the least. Um, uh, I like Gary Oldman in it. Um, I'll spoil it now. I don't think he should have been nominated for actor uh i liked um god damn it uh i liked amanda seyfried uh again i i i don't know why she's nominated uh i think this movie would have had a much better reputation over time if it wasn't nominated for all this shit uh it's definitely bottom tier uh fincher but i think there's a lot of good stuff in it i think it's very watchable um i think it shot itself in the foot uh, harping so much on the making of Citizen Kane uh, idea and not focusing on um, the political aspect and how it re reflects uh, how Hollywood really hasn't changed all that much and how the political climate hasn't changed that much. Uh, uh, connecting the dots between um, the Upton Sinclair election and um, the fake news of the time and, uh, you know, how that's, uh, I don't know if anybody's heard about this, but fake news is a thing still. Uh, 
I think when this comes down to it, it will be closer to the bottom of my rankings for Best Picture nominees, but I really like it a lot. I think its uh, rep will uh, grow over time, if not being one of his best. It'll at least be, well, at least it didn't steal a win from this category or this director or this actor or whatever. And we could just look at it as uh, Fincher kind of flexing his technical credits and his technical proficiency, I should say, and um, maybe not hitting a home run, but uh, hitting a hitting a hitting a solid double that uh, could have been legged into a triple if uh, he put a little more effort into it. Just so folks know, we've already recorded our Citizen Kane episode, which you guys will hear in two weeks. So we've done a temporal pincer movement uh, to now. Uh, previously in our episode, in our, uh, what, what do you call it? In our podcast feed, do a, a new installment of our, I guess, recurring segment, Mank Talk. It's Mank Talk, everyone. And to that, I say, Mank, no thanks. Uh, no, I shouldn't be that bad. Uh, I, 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 I was frustrated with Mank, and I was mostly frustrated with Mank because I should like Mank. I should love Mank, right? My thing with Fincher is that, Sometimes when he gets to, I, there's, there's my, the Fincher movies I like the least are the ones where I feel like he's lazy. Um, the ones that I watch and kind of go, okay, man, what are we, sure. What do you really have to say about the girl with the dragon tattoo? What are we doing here? Um, so with Mank, it's a, it's a different kind of movie for him working off his father's script. Um, I thought that when I saw the cast, I thought, great. I loved how it looked in the trailers. I should have been all in for Mank. This is very much my kind of movie. Um, and and Tom, I, I'm, you know, maybe he'll back me up, maybe he won't, but this also feels like the kind of divisive movie that I would be championing real hard this time of year. Um, this is my kind of divisive movie in a way, but God, I just, I felt the film was so directionless. It's very long. It's very dry. Um, there's a right, there's a way to do this movie and there's a way to do this story. Um, and in this case, I just kind of felt like attempting to anchor the story in the idea that the entirety of the inspiration for Citizen Kane came from this one moment, came from Gary Oldman being like, oh, I, I guess Bill Nye, the science guy should run California and, and Charles Dance going, no. And him going, I guess I'm going to make a movie about you. I, it's a weird, I don't. At the end of the day, it was one of these movies that I watched. And I just didn't get what, what was the point of it all? Like what, to what end? Any of this, um, you know, I, I agree with Tom that like tie, making it all about the making of Citizen Kane is a weird choice, especially because Kane so brilliantly kind of structures itself through this this flat, you know, this this uh, narrative structure of, of the flashbacks because we're figuring out Rosebud. And I think maybe if you'd done the framing device of, you know, the arbitration determining whether Wells should get credit on Citizen Kane or not, you could have an excuse for flashbacks. As it is now, it's just, it's it's disjointed in the way it jumps back and forth. It I don't understand what exactly we were driving out with this. And to be honest, my biggest problem with the film is that by the end of the two and a half hour runtime... I don't feel like I know anything about Mank anymore. I don't feel like I understand this person anymore. Um, it's a very bizarre thing. Um, so, no, I'm not a Mank guy. Uh, I, I get why people dig it technically. Um, 
and and listen, if Mank works for you, hey, that's that's great. Um, but in terms of divisive, I'm not mad about it. I just kind of went, oh, okay. It feels like a weird misfire. Uh, maybe it was Fincher's reverence to his father uh, in making the film because his father had passed. Uh, I do, uh, much as I don't like Mank, I do kind of find it um, awful that he makes this entire movie uh, off of his father's screenplay to honor his father's wishes and to honor his father's one dream of getting this film made. And the Academy goes, we are going to honor this movie in literally every category, but screenplay. Come on. Yes. Guys. What are we doing here? What's the point of it? If it had gotten a screenplay nomination, I could have at least sat back and been like, you know what? Great. Good. That's, that's, that's that it achieved what it wanted to do. Um, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a man guy. Um, I, it's, it, you know, fine you know it's there but anyway kyle did you see mank no mank uh funny enough your uh your uh resounding uh review of it was the reason i was sort of hesitant of it uh when i was making my list of movies i still need to catch up on so uh, mank was at the bottom of my list and unfortunately it became the only film on this list that i did not get around to so no i did i did not watch mank kyle look I, I get that watching the Oscar nominees can be a mankless job, but not like that, Kyle. Not yeah, mankless in that way. Yeah. Um, what's next? What are we talking about next? Um, let's let's talk about Minari. I'm happy to. I think Minari is a masterpiece. I have watched it twice. I will watch it many more times. I did not have expectations for it because I'll be honest, from the marketing and everything, this is one of the movies this year that felt like Oh, this is the movie everybody in, you know, everybody in Brooklyn hypes up as like the next great masterwork. And I watch and go, yeah, it's fine. Um, but instead, I was blown away. Uh, I, I uh, came close to weeping several times. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary film. And I think it's an extraordinary film because it doesn't try to do anything radical. Um, I think that instead of trying to be, as so many movies do, uh, this idea of, we're going to be a subversion of the Norman Rockwell vision of America or, you know, oh, well, we're going to, you know, you, you think America is like those idyllic, like 50s Disney films? No, it's not. We're actually going to do this. Instead, this movie is 100% the traditional 50s life on the farm movie. It hits the same kind of story beats where, you know, yeah, new family moves to town. What's the central conflict? Well, mom misses life in the big city. Boy's having trouble adjusting. Dad just wants to make the farm work. There's a drought. There's a barn fire. Like th these kind of simple story beats. But what it does in addition to that is it brings in this element of life as a Korean American. And it does not overload the film with the kind of, you know, let's show white people racism is bad scenes. Um, instead, it features uh, a, a, a significant amount of microaggressions and, uh, you know, uh, ignorance. But every moment where you think like, oh, is this going to do the big Hollywood movie thing where, uh, you know, when they, the, the farmhand first comes by and goes, oh, are you Korean? And you're like, oh, are we going to get a moment where he says something and the dad has to, and no, he's like, oh yeah, I was over there in the war. Yep. Yep. 
you know, you have a couple of moments where like uh, where a kid actually says a thing that a kid would say, which is why is your face flat? And the kid goes, no, it's not. And we move on. Um, the performances in this film are extraordinary. The cinematography is great. The score is great. Um, it is the traditional American farm film, the traditional uh you know uh mi- midwest uh you know heartland story and what i love about it is that lee isaac chung in this film is not refuting that or subverting that film or anything he is simply saying that is our story too and that's what i loved about this film a lot is is it is a reclamation so much of our history has been misrepresented whether it be uh wartime or or the old west or anything where if you watch the movies and you learn American history from the movies, you would assume that uh, everybody who who was a farmer or everybody who was a cowboy or everybody who was a soldier was white. And that's it. And that's simply not true. Um, the story of the American farmer is not just a Dutch American story or an Irish American story. It's a Korean American story. It's a black American story. Uh, and and Minari captures that so well. Um, you know, and the, the grandmother is great. Uh, uh uh, the you know everybody's great. I love the kid. I love all of it. I love how honest it feels. It's a deeply moving film. Uh, I could talk about specific moments uh, all day. This is the movie that I think, if anything from this batch ends up in the registry, I hope it's this. I think it could be this because I think that this does an incredible job of uh, of cinematic representation by just reclaiming a narrative. Uh, I love this movie very much. Minari, exceptional masterpiece. Love it to death. Uh, yeah, I like I like Minari a lot. It's uh, going to be in the top half of my rankings for the Best Picture nominees. Uh, can't disagree with much of what you said, um, other than I don't think it's going to get canonized. I'm, like I said, I don't think anything he is going to get canonized. Um, uh, I also think the ending kind of is bad with the fire. Um, just two, two movie two movie ending to kind of coalesce with the rest of the naturalistic movie that followed beforehand. But um, yeah, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it's getting all these um, nominations. I'm especially glad for uh, Stephen Yun, the fucking uh, Adam driver of the walking dead. Um, (laughs) uh, I I can't really disagree. It looks great. Uh, It's, great score direction's great um this is uh kind of one of the best cases um uh honestly the whole bunch probably the whole year of um what you get with a um a different pov uh it's not in your face about it it's not like um it's not like fucking uh uh, a sentient uh twitter thread it's like no this is a movie we've seen this before but with all the different details, it adds up to something fresher, and that's why you need to stop letting fucking white dipshits from Sundance make every goddamn movie. Because we want something fresh, people. We want something new. And Lee Isaac Chung and his team brought something new to a very tried and true and well-worn, holy shit is it well-worn, story of coming of age in the 80s. Um, uh, glad it's here. Uh... Excited to see what Lee does next. Uh, good chance Steven Young's not going to win Best Actor this year, but uh, can't wait for him to inevitably win. 
even though it's probably going to be like him and uh, Adam Driver are going to be like the Tom Hardy and Fassbender <laughs> of their uh, acting class, where it's just like, yeah, they're always great, but uh, when are we going to give them an award for the great things they do, guys? They're gonna they're gonna keep being the bridesmaid, but never the bride. Kyle, any thought? Did you see Minari? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, obviously, just harping again what you guys said. Shouting out uh, Stephen Yoon, uh, fellow Kalamazoo College alumni, uh, fellow uh, Festival Playhouse uh, performer at Kalamazoo with me. So it's really awesome uh, to see somebody. Wait, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. Yeah. You said at Kalamazoo with me. Not, not with me, excuse me. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I feel like you no, left the detail out for us. No. No, to be clear, no, no, to be clear, we share the same stage in the sense that we've performed on the same stage, but not on the same stage together. So, um, also, <laughs> you two did not do a waiting for Godot out there or something. No, I mean, I mean, in a way, I, we talk, we kind of talked about Jordan Klepper in in, in that yes. regard, or like it was always somebody that was that was doing uh, cool things out there, but was never anybody that we uh, would see uh, on on campus uh, because he was doing those busy things. So. It was, yeah, so so now that we have Steven Yoon, we've got a new uh, we've got a new golden child. Uh, I, I agree. Um, it, uh, Minari feels very theatrical in the sense that it doesn't f- inherently do anything. It, it doesn't inherently tell a story that's like over the top or dramatic. Um, and in that regard, it's sort of what makes it special because it is sort of just a slice of life. Everything just sort of working together to make it seem just so natural it's the type of movie that i did not like or would not like growing up but as i got older as i started to learn more about um film um you know in college and whatnot it's the type of film i've grown to appreciate even if it doesn't inherently resonate with me um and this is sort of kind of in the middle where i recognize um what they were trying to accomplish and can certainly appreciate the performances um was not really what I was looking for. And I don't really know what I was looking for, um, but obviously a strong contender. Um, but um, yeah, didn't really resonate with me in the way that it has with a lot of other people. What's uh, what's the next film you want to talk about, Kyle? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know what? I'm really interested in Nomadland. I want to know what you guys think about that. Okay, so uh, of all the nominees here, nobody has any strong opinions about Nomadland. <laughs> this is not a movie that gets people riled up into a lather <laughs> as if it took their uh, favorite aunt out back and shot her in the head. Um, yeah, Nomadland. Uh, interesting movie. Um, Chloe Zhao, savior of cinema until we found out her dad had money and now the devil, um, <laughs> wanted to make a movie. Uh, before she got to uh, the Eternals. Um, she already had the Eternals, so it's not like she made this. And then uh, Kevin Feige was like, this is an obvious choice for the Eternals. Um, she made it uh, quick in between uh, during the pre-production of that movie. Uh, it's based off a novel that uh, was brought to her by Frances McDormand uh, about um, uh, nomads, people who live in their vans and basically live... Uh, I don't know, is transient the right word where they just basically live doing like part-time jobs, seasonal jobs. They live off the grid. They kind of just live their own lives. Um, uh, it's a story that sounds like it could be fucking misery porn, um, but it isn't. Uh, I think the movie does a very good job of showing that this is not, despite some of the stories we hear from um, uh, other than Francis McDormand and David Strathairn, 
uh, all real nomads telling their stories. Uh, a thing that Clojure likes to do, uh, the verisimilitude of having real non-actors populating her movies. Uh, can't wait to see what alien she got to sign up for the Eternals. Um, uh, it, it, you get the sense that even if there's some tragedy in these people's lives or there's a sense of they didn't uh, necessarily start out to choose it, that there is a uh, uh, a satisfaction to the lives they're living, that they, uh, a peace they've made, um, that there is a sort of uh, getting out of the uh, the rat race and enjoying the beauty of the world uh, capitalism is destroying. Um, I know, <laughs> again, in a very calm way, people were... Um, perturbed at the movie not taking Amazon and disemboweling it like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Um, uh, it, it centers on McDormid. Um, I don't know if you know this, but she's an actress, so she's not a transient. Uh, filling the shoes of a made-up character, kind of guiding us through this world. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a move that uh, has uh, ruffled some feathers. Um the the collision of uh actors and non-actors in this kind of story um but i think it works uh i think if it was misery porn it it would fall into a sort of well this is gross having an actress do this thing where with all these real people but i think because there is a sense of warmth and community and a sense that this isn't some miserable existence for these people uh, uh i think it uh manages to overcome any of those things uh in my humblest of esteems um uh, i think mcdorm is great as usual uh david strathan is always a welcome presence uh i genuinely wonder if he knew he was in godzilla king of the monsters two years ago um uh i think it's a pretty great movie uh it's gonna be uh kind of right in the middle of my rankings um it's got a malik vibe to it it looks great um uh, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a unique movie. It's an interesting movie. Uh, one that I was kind of worried about because of the, um, the wild swings in perception of Chloe Zhao in the last year or so, uh, two years, I guess of, like I said, uh, everyone thought she was the savior of cinema and then, oh no, she, her dad had money and now she's, uh, she's a fucking, uh, MAGA hat or whatever. Like the way people just... I kind of got like, okay, I'm going to have a feeling she's not that good, but uh, she might be that good. I'm excited to see where she goes um, without the um, the non-actor thing, how she could uh, shift her style uh, to a more uh, cinematic in uh, the uh, more popular sense. Um, yeah, Nomadland. Thought it was pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. I want to preface this by saying that I really, really like The Rider, which is Chloe Zhao's film before this. And I'm very, very excited for Eternals, which is her next film. Not only am I not a Nomadland guy, this movie seems designed for me to not like it. Um, it does everything that bothers me with movies. Um, you know, our, our past guest of the show, Justin Jones called me out for what he says is uh, not liking poverty porn. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but I do have a hang up about like, I get very weirded out by movies. Uh, I felt this way about Roma. I felt this way about a lot. I get very weirded about out about movies that seem to take this tone of, ah, the simple nobility of the pores. And to its credit, Nomadland doesn't really do that so much. Like it doesn't do the, 
oh, this simple dumb idiot doesn't know. No, I mean, it it treats its people as real people and it gives them dimension. Um, at the same time, like, I remember when the hype around this was strong and I really like Chloe Zhao and I like the writer, but I remember when the trailer came out, a friend of ours was saying, I think said to both of us, like, oh my God, did you see that trailer? I'm so excited. Like, it's gonna be so great. And I just remember thinking, I see this trailer five different times at the quad every year. Like this is a movie that comes out every year in terms of like the the violin strings doing the movie star now doing an indie film going, I just want to find my place. Like it's I've this happens. Um and when I finally saw the film I was just I was very underwhelmed. Um I kind of felt I I have some, you know, yeah, I you know, again it's not Build for me. I, I don't love the nobility of the force thing. I, I also, um, part of my problem is I have a real issue. I can't vibe with movies where the central conflict is like, well, we're following a main character and everybody is saying, hey, please do this one thing. It's better for you, safer for you. It would be better for us. We'd be happier. You'd be happier. And the main character is going, no, I got to go my own way, do my own thing. Like, I understand why that was appealing at a certain point. Um, you know, these things where it's like, look, my family wants me to, to stay home and be with them, but you know, everybody's got a hungry heart. Like I understand why that was appealing at one point, but I just couldn't help but watch, uh, this, this movie whose conflict was kind of like David Strathairn being like, why don't we, you settle down here? Like it's better for you. It's, it's, it's better for everybody or the family being like, come, come be with us. And McDormand's character's central conflict being like, nah, I'm going to go do this thing. Cause I feel it. I, I, I kept thinking of like, well, this is the same mentality that makes people go yell at Disney World because they're making them wear a mask. Like, this is the kind of mentality that that makes people kind of go like, no, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna wear a mask. I'm not gonna get vaccinated. I'm gonna do my own thing. I have a right to to liberty and to live my life my way. And it's like, okay, man. So I had a hard time hooking into this thing. Um, I also got real weirded out about the the combination of real people and actors. Uh, I, I think you can do that. I think you can absolutely do that. Um, I think that, you know, Robert Bresson using amateur actors, I thought was always great. I kind of had the problem with Nomadland that I had with Up in the Air, which is, you know, with Up in the Air, you had real people talking about their real layoffs during an economic crisis. And then it was like, and they're telling this real heartbreaking stuff. And then it goes like, and let's talk about George Clooney pretending to have an existential crisis. I felt because it used real people, when you get to that scene toward the end, and there's this real man talking about his real son's real death, and then Frances McDormand, who I think is normally a very good actress, and I think she's good in this film, but Frances McDormand, one of our finest, then gives this monologue about her fake husband, and it just feels fake because I just heard a real person really describe mm -hmm. a real tragedy. Um, so I felt, yeah, I don't, I don't vibe with this film. I felt like it was very... Um, I understand what it was trying to do, and I respect the craft of it. But yeah, I, I mean, the fact that it's based on a, a it's based on a nonfiction book, not a novel. It's a nonfiction book, mm -hmm. so it creates this fictional character and anchors in it. And the real people telling their real stories. Every real story we got to me is so so much more interesting than the central story of Francis McDormand being like, I just want to work at Amazon and drive around in a van. And it's like, oh, do you want to, here's this guy. Do you want to hang out with him? No. Oh, you got family. Do you want, nah, nah, this is my thing. It's like, okay, okay man. 
it felt very, I, I don't know. I, I, I had a hard time latching on to this one. I, I, I got weird vibes um, from it, and I just think that some of the choices don't work. I don't, this is one of those ones I truly don't get why this was, I feel like this movie comes out every year. I see the trailers at Quad every year. Uh, I don't, I don't know what it was about this that, that hooked on the zeitgeist the way that it did. Um, so, yeah, again, I like, if it clicks for people, it clicks for people. Um, but this is one of those ones where I'm just like, I don't know, not not my bag, not my tempo. Um, it's not for me. But uh, it's probably going to win Best Picture. I'm not going to be mad if it wins Best Picture, to be honest, in terms of, like, it's the thing that I look at and go, it's not for me. It's not my type of movie. But if it wins Best Picture, cool. Um, I like Chloe Zhao a lot. Uh, you know, if she wins Best Director, I'm not going to be mad. There's a lot of things where, great, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, whatever it is, I'm happy. So, uh, Kyle, did you see Nomadland? Yeah, I did not realize um, that Francis McDormand's character. I did not do a lot of research going into Nomadland. Um, I was definitely excited about it. Um, you oh, know, you didn't know Francis McDormand was an actress? She's I been in a number of films, Kyle. Yeah. That's um, crazy. Fargo, uh, yeah. Three Billboards. You know? yeah, yeah, which is crazy because I love Three Billboards. Had no idea that was her. You know, they've just the makeup yeah. that they did. I mean, Nomadland and Three Billboards. Totally different. Recognize her. Yeah. So, um, but I had no idea that her character. Um, was not actually based off of a real person. I actually did not know that the people, uh, that the majority of the cast were playing themselves. And that kind of puts a new spin on things. If anything, it makes me want to go back and watch it again to sort of feel like if it resonated with me. Cause I sort of, I guess I thought because Fern was a real character or like, like going into it that, you know, maybe I sort of let it go. And now I guess I wonder if, you know, as as you said, it sort of would be a better, um, you know, it would be better to sort of put that focus on, you know, like the actual people going into it as opposed to trying to like embed a Hollywood narrative into a very real um, issue. Um, overall, though, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I loved the aesthetic. I definitely loved the world um, that they created, um, even as, as, as devastating as it is, um, I wrote uh, a little thing that like, you know, if Minari's telling the story from the perspective that, you know, we usually don't bring into the conversation, then Nomadland is a um, story about the people we leave behind. Um, and so uh, in, in that regard, I really enjoy what it does. Um, uh, again, I, 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 I'm not hyping for it the way that it sounds like film Twitter, Twitter is. Um, definitely would not be mad if anybody... Um, again, takes, takes home the nomination or takes home the win. Um, Francis is my front runner, though. I do say that, um, having not seen uh, Viola Davis, uh, uh performance, cause I just assume that she's going to win cause she kills everything that she does. So, um, so I'll also just, oh. uh, just one final point. Uh, we all know somebody that, uh, lives the nomad life now and, um, said this movie was pretty powerful and uh emotional and poetic and not uh uh some hollywood uh in in his mind a hollywood like circle jerk fest so to uh to whatever that uh amounts to uh there's that uh this is probably the one out of this list that i've been most curious to hear your guys's opinion on um i want to hear i want to hear your guys's take on promising young woman all right so i'm gonna go first and i'll say look it's a divisive film not only that, it's a it's a genre film, it's a revenge flick, 
It's very hyped by film Twitter. So there's a lot of things that kind of uh, are, are guiding me to not liking this film. And then I watched it. And to that, I have to say, even though the gods are crazy, even though the stars are blind, if you show me real love, baby, I'll show you mine. I love this movie. I absolutely loved this film. And I was shocked. I went in with a, 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 you know, just expecting like, yeah, this isn't my bag. You know, I because I don't like, you know, the 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 genre film. I don't like the revenge film. I don't like anything like that. And the marketing, I just kept looking at it and going like, this isn't going to be my bag. And instead, I uh, was stunned at how much I enjoyed this movie. I think it's it's bold. I think it's it's doing something different, which I really appreciate. And I've seen criticisms of that. I've weirdly seen two different critiques of this movie one saying it doesn't go hard enough and one saying it goes too hard and i i don't understand um personally i love emerald fennel's idea that uh in her opinion and this is coming from her personal experience and her personal viewpoint that if she was going to exact revenge and 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 women like her were going to exact revenge it would not just be violence it would not just be murder it would be something more maniacal be something more calculating um and look i understand this is not reflective of everyone's experience um you know that's kind of the beauty of art is it's somebody going this is what i think this is my point of view on this um you know uh but at the same time i i really uh, enjoyed it i thought it was very bold i thought uh the fact that it is a movie that is uh a movie that is conscious that it's a movie um there's nothing realistic about this film it doesn't have any interest in being realistic uh, it is simply trying to frame itself. Emily Vanderwerf made the great point that it's uh, responding to, uh, you know, not just the romantic comedy, but the bro comedy. You know, it's very divisive ending is a critique of the the uh, dead sex worker trope in so many, um, you know, uh, teen comedies and all that. Um, and I, I thoroughly uh, enjoyed this film. I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. Uh, I think the movie doesn't work without Carrie Mulligan. I think she's delivering the exact pitch that this movie needs. Uh, I love the use of color. I love the visuals. My favorite part by far uh, that is not being talked about enough, I love the Alfred Molina character. It would have been very easy to make this a righteous movie. It would have been very easy to make this a movie that is on Carrie Mulligan's side. Uh, I don't love the comparisons where people are like, oh, this is women's Joker. Because no, Joker is very much a movie about Arthur Fleck, we're from his point of view, we're in this. This movie has characters constantly telling Carrie Mulligan, you need to move on from this. Her parents are saying, move out of the house. You need to move on from this. Um, you know, uh, uh, Molly Shannon, for a couple minutes, is there as uh, the, you know, the, the mother of, of uh, the girl who died, saying, you have to move on. This is not a movie, I think this is a movie in, in some ways about uh, our millennial obsession with trauma in a way that um, that I feel like, uh, you know, the, the baby boomers had this unhealthy approach of like anything bad that happened to you, just bury it down, bury it deep down and never, ever think about it. And then eventually you explode and go on a, a killing spree or something like that. Uh, and millennials, I think we have a very different approach, which is uh, if you listen to the Internet's uh, advice uh, as opposed to a therapist, the Internet will tell you, this is it. You are defined by the worst thing that ever happened to you. You are defined by your trauma, and, and that's it. Dwell in it. Live in it forever. And Promising a Woman is kind of the, the you know, this person who just can't, she just lives in it. It becomes an obsession for her. Um, and what I think is brilliant is uh, when you get to the scene with Alfred Molina, 
and unlike these other people who are, are unrepentant or are, um, you know, are just trying to say, well, what about me? Don't destroy my life, isn't it? Alfred Molina feels guilt. He feels guilt. He is repentant. And in that repentance, he gets forgiveness. And I think that a mov most movies that were trying to do this would exclude that scene. They wouldn't have that. That scene really gets me. Uh, I Yeah, I was really impressed with this film, uh, which I did not expect to be. Tom, I know, was shocked when I told him how much I liked it because uh, he hadn't seen it at the time, but was just like, "This, there's no way this is a Mike movie. Um, really enjoy it. Uh, I think that there are... Uh, this is one of those movies, too, that um, there's been a lot of Jennifer's Body discourse in the last year and a half um, of people rediscovering it and people championing it. Um, and to me, like, I remember seeing Jennifer's Body when it came out and thinking, oh, it's actually pretty fun because um, I had really liked Juno. So I was like, I'm going to go see Jennifer's Body. Uh, and the thing with Jennifer's Body at the time, people now are saying, like, well, the reason they didn't like Jennifer's Body was it was entirely... Uh, you know, uh, you know, industry misogyny, and that is a large part of it. Do not get me wrong; we were terrible to Megan Fox and largely terrible to Diablo Cody. But what I think people are forgetting is that even like women friends of mine, well, I guess girl friends of mine, women friends, you know, college didn't like the movie, didn't click with the movie, uh, and that wasn't just because of internal misogyny or anything like that. It was also a thing of that movie was marketed one way; people expected it to be one thing. And then when the movie came out, they left complaining that the movie was not what they wanted it to be. It was not what they expected it to be. It wasn't what they wanted it to be. It wasn't uh, what was sold to them in a way. And now part of the Jennifer's Body reckoning or, or, or recognition is people finally watching the movie for what it is instead of what they wanted it to be. And in some of the qualms that I've seen, because God knows there are so many think pieces about Promising Young Woman. Um uh, you know, some people have very valid criticisms, and I, I fully support that. It is not a movie for everybody. It's a divisive movie. I love that it's a divisive movie um, because it's. I think it's divisive in a fun way. Um, but I'm seeing some people whose qualms tend to just be, well, it didn't do what I wanted it to. Okay, well, you know, it, it wasn't what I wanted it to be. All right. But it it is what it is. I think it's doing something interesting. I think it's a clear vision here. Um, and I think that you know, the people who are wondering why didn't people get Jennifer's body when it came out? If you're also on team, oh, you know, Promising Young Woman doesn't work, maybe just try giving it another shot with watching it for what it is instead of what you want it to be. I think there's something there. If nothing else, I think that it's wonderful that a female-directed film got nominated for Best Picture, and it's wonderful that a genre movie, female-directed genre movie gets nominated for Best Picture. We hear laments on film Twitter all the time that women-directed films are neglected by the Academy, and that genre films are directed by the Academy. You got it in both cases. It may not be exactly what you want it to be, but in the same way that people complaining that comic book movies aren't getting enough respect when they're number one at the box office, take the win. This is a, this is a win. Take the win. I really like Promising Young Woman. Okay. Um, so as Mike said, I was surprised when he said he... Really fell head over heels for this movie because, like he said, revenge movie, genre movie, not his typical bag. This sounds like my typical bag. I went out with his ravings about this movie, excited to pick it up at Best Buy. I picked it up. I put it in. I go, okay, let's get to it. And to continue this uh, this movie's complete uh, 
180 for each of these co-hosts. I thought this movie was a fucking piece of shit. Uh, it's a, I don't think it's uh, bold or doing anything interesting at all. I think it is uh, makes the worst choice at every single step of the way. Uh, it's toothless. It's ending is beyond stupid. It's be and it not only is it stupid, it it completely just fucking it's ugh. I don't even know how to get into it without like just spoiling the whole thing, but like the ending is a complete betrayal of what this movie wanted to be. Uh she's not the dead sex worker. She's a woman who pretended to be a sex worker who came to try to kill a man, and then that man, whether he's a good guy or not, was def- defending himself. She's not the dead stripper that fuels uh uh, one of these 90s or 80s sex comedies who was just an innocent woman who died. She is a woman out for, at finally, at, so, at about an hour and 45 minutes into the movie, finally out for revenge. Um, Carrie Mulligan, I don't even know, I can't even blame her. She doesn't have a character to play. She just has some words to say monotonously in a kind of sleepy voice. Um uh, the Alfred Molina thing, again, complete fucking bullshit it going with this whole movies thing of, uh, the system broke my friend and made her kill herself. So I'm going to get revenge by, I don't know, scolding people every week. Um, so I'm going to forgive the lawyer who got her rapist off and I'm going to make an entire plot to get the guy who, uh, raped my friend in front of an entire crowd of doctorates, doctoral students and make sure that he gets arrested for my murder and make sure the system takes him down instead of me because the system works now. I, I, I think it's a reach to even call this a genre movie. Uh, it's barely a revenge movie. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's really just a horrible, horrible movie. And uh, it's so fucking funny that Mike liked it too, because of all the times he's finally liked the rape revenge movie uh, that, and it gets nominated for, I think this fucking sucked. I think this was a trend chasing empty headed movie that only got nominated because there was not much this year. Uh, I think this sucks. Um, uh, glad to never think about this movie ever again. I can tell you right now, I'm right in the middle right here, uh, where, um, this was the one movie. Uh, it's the first movie I saw. The best pictures. Um, uh, my girlfriend really wanted to see it, um, so I had it on my radar for a really long time. Um, I had fun. Um, it subverted my expectations and what I expected it to do. Because um, I agree with Tom uh, from the trailer, it could kind of had like this kind of this edgy woke vibe to it that I think could go either one way or the other. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, I don't, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's just the general theme this year for me is like all of these films are like, yeah, like I either like really didn't care for it or like, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't like champion any of any of these films. So I'm not, I'm not over here, you know, acting like if you liked this or you hated this, you're, you're an awful human being. I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, and you know, I, I'm curious to see Emerald's work, uh, you know, work on Zatanna. Um, you know, that should be interesting, but, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it for what it is and I like Bo Burnham, so I'm, I'm a little biased there too. I can't wait for the villain of Satan to say not all Kyle, wizards. Kyle, what's the next movie? Get me out of this. Just get us out of this. <laughs> I'm um, done. I'm done in this cesspool. Get us out. Listen, We're going to be I, much I, happier I, next. We have, uh, we have, we have spent a lot of time, uh, talking, uh, so I figured we could, uh, we could bring it back. Um, we could pull it back a little bit. 
pull back the sound and discuss uh, Sound of Metal. If that's all I, right with you, Kyle. Kevin. I love all of the buildup you're doing. Everyone listening who has by now figured out this is alphabetical order. <laughs> we're, we're almost at the end. Everyone oh, by now has figured out. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, why? Somebody's gonna somebody somebody's gonna post a meme that was like me halfway through this episode, not realizing it was alphabetical order. And I'll we be don't like, have oh, somebody did a meme. Listen, we, I was gonna say we have fans, and we have had listeners reach out to us, which is very cool. We do not have meme list. You know what? Anyone not listening yet. to this now, tweet memes at us. I don't care I what they memes. are. Tweet yeah, memes. I don't. At us. I don't need your reviews. I need your memes. So, uh, Tom, sound of metal. Sound of Metal. Great fucking movie. This is uh, really going to be high in my rankings of Best Picture. Um, story about a uh, Riz Ahmed plays a drummer in a punk duo uh, with uh, Olivia Cooke as the front woman. Uh, they're, a, they're a couple, uh, and he uh, starts experiencing severe hearing loss, basically... Uh, like precipitously, like over like a two or three day span, his hearing like drops off like 70%, 80%, something like that. Um, and he has to stop playing because, uh, I don't know if anybody knows this music concerts are loud, especially punk concerts, especially if you're the fucking drummer. Uh, so he has to stop, uh, to, uh, go to, uh, essentially a, um, a recovery camp for addicts that are uh, specifically hearing impaired. Yeah, they're hearing impaired, uh, different uh, levels and uh, whatever of uh, hearing impairment. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, being an addict is, uh, is enough of a problem, but being a deaf addict is uh, adds another layer to the entire thing. Um, so he goes there, uh, connects with the head of this camp, uh, played uh, wonderfully by Paul Racy. Um, and from there, you get the story of a guy who... Uh, essentially cannot come to grips with the fact of his changed new existence and um, tries to, uh, he, he learns to live with it kind of, but you realize he's just kind of uh, treading water until he could f- quote unquote fix himself uh, and get a surgery that will put, um, uh, put some implants in his head where, so he can start here again. Um, which leads to some drama and you, uh, I think it's a beautiful movie. Uh, I think, uh, this connects to a lot of themes and interests that I, uh, very deeply connect to, um, uh, themes that I think similar to, uh, a movie that's not nominated for best picture, but is nominated for best director. Uh, the idea of you can't, uh, live your life looking for a cheat code something to lean on you have to make do with the hand you're given and you have to try to make the life the you try to have to live the best life you can with what you got you can't look for a uh a cheat you know you can't look for a crutch um Rizumet is unbelievable in this movie i mean this guy's been impressive since he kind of exploded onto the scene in the night before a few years ago on hbo um if he, you know if uh, it, it's a shame he's probably going to lose to chadwick boseman uh, because this is an unbelievable performance. Um, Polar Race, like I said, is great. Uh, Olivia Cook, I think, is pretty good in the limited time she's got. Uh, Matthias Almarak also makes a nice little impression. Uh, I think this is just a great, interesting, unique movie that um, would work as a pretty good like uh, B side. Uh, in uh, that's music terms, folks. When pe- when music was physical, um, to Whiplash. 
uh, another Oscar player from a few years before. Uh, I think this is a great movie. Uh, I think everybody would like it. It's on Amazon Studio, uh, Amazon Prime. If you guys have Amazon Prime, you probably do because um, Amazon rules the world. And uh, I think it's just like a sad, tragic, heartbreaking, but ultimately like heartwarming, inspiring movie without ever being didactic or schmaltzy or like a typical Oscar fucking movie about, you know, a quote unquote disability. Uh, I think it's great. Everybody should check it out. Uh, Joe Bob says, check it out. Uh, I agree with everything Tom said about this film. I want to clarify this film, not the last one. I agree with what he says on this one. Uh, I also like that, uh, if I may, Tom, you clearly got so burnt out uh, railing against Promising Young Woman that you needed to build up to your opinion. You just kind of started with like, this is what the film's about. Also, it's great um, to build back up. Uh, But I think that's important because this film is all about building yourself back up. This is a film that is very much about overcoming something uh, and not fixing yourself or anything like that, but simply accept the hand that has been dealt to you and forging a new path. There's an extraordinary scene with uh, Riz Ahmed where he's frustrated and he, he bangs on a slide, a metal slide, and he looks up and there's a kid who's delighted, a deaf child who's delighted because he felt the vibration on the slide. And Riz starts drumming with his fists on the slide. And I have thought about that scene so many times. Um, yeah, it's a very emotional movie. It's a beautiful movie, a moving story. Um, again, I, I have, I have a little to add that Tom didn't already say, because I think that's, he's, he's right on the money. It's an incredible film. It's one of my favorites this year. And I, it's also the kind of movie that in a normal Oscar year where studios are dumping their big heavy hitters, this is a thing that maybe gets an actor nomination. Um, because it's a small, subtle film. It's the kind of thing they don't always pay attention to. Uh, I agree with Tom that Rizamet has been uh, fantastic for a very long time, uh, and I'm glad he's getting recognized, and I'm glad Paul Racy is getting recognized. I think he's exceptional as well. Um, and uh, it's tough. It's a tough choice between um, this or life itself, but I dare say this is my favorite movie where Olivia, Cook, uh, Olivia Cooke plays the front woman of a punk band. Um I think this is a great film. I, I Sentimental is exceptional, and I, I like Tom says. I hope everybody checks it out. Kyle, did you see Sentimental? Yeah, um, like you guys, I uh, just blown away uh, by it. Had again no real expectations, or didn't really have any inclination of what it was about going into it. Um, I don't. <laughs> there's so there, there's so much this movie. I think the the biggest takeaway for me, I think it's just how much this movie. Like I feel like it's a film about the difficulties I think of having to like relearn how to connect with people again when like the things that you take for granted are taken from you. And I think that is a pretty central theme of what we've been dealing with this year. And um, I think using that in the frame of, you know, quite literally, you know, not only having to like navigate the world again, but to, to learn an entirely different language in order to communicate with people again, I think was just such a moving experience for me to watch. Um, yeah. Sound of metal continues um, to resonate with me. Uh, I think I saw it about a couple of days ago. And I'm still thinking about it a lot. Um, so definitely, definitely high on my list. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> not much outside of that. Um, 
I'm going. Well, since it's we've only got two more left, uh, we're gonna go with the we're gonna go with the father. <laughs> the father, holy cow, the father. So yeah. I had not heard of the father. The father wasn't something that was making waves. It was not a Nomadland. We know this is going to be a front runner from its festival premiere. I hadn't really heard of the father. Uh, it racked up some nominations, racked up some Golden Globe nominations for Hopkins and Coleman. And I remember only two things. One, the poster looked very boring. And two, the only thing we knew about it, the only description that I had seen was Olivia Coleman plays Anthony Hopkins' daughter coping with Anthony Hopkins' dementia. And I went, oh boy. I just, just from that description and everything, I'm like, oh, this is the typical movie. Uh, great. I, I, oh man, if it gets Best Picture nomination, I'm going to have to go see this. This is the kind of movie that I still go see because it gets nominated, but this is the kind of movie that, you know, let's face it, there are certain films that get up for Best Picture not everybody goes to see. I, I'm probably one of the few people that saw Philomena, you know? Like, it's one of those. Is what I thought. And then the day the Oscar nominations come out, Father gets picture and all that. It gets a production design nomination, which seemed crazy to me because it was, from what I could tell, set in an apartment. Uh, so I went out to see it that day. Um, and I say went out to see it because I was masked up and everything. But I figured it was a safe bet that um, a, a movie theater uh, uh, in the heart of Long Island uh, was not going to have a huge rush to go see uh, an Alzheimer's drama. I was right. I was the only person in the theater uh and it was incredible i had no idea and uh, again if you are afraid of spoilers folks skip this part uh just fast forward a bit um i had no idea what this film was i had no idea that it would be so funny i had no idea that it'd be so engaging because it is a movie that has the radical idea of depicting uh dementia from the point of view of the patient uh hopkins for us, the viewer is uh, completely sane and, and completely together uh, dealing with what is essentially a Louis Bunuel farce going on. Um, the entire film is, is farcical in a way, you know, he walks into an empty room uh, only to find that there's several people in there. Uh, days go by uh, and he doesn't notice. And for us, it gives us a sense of what it is like to go through that, that it is not, what every other movie depicts it as, which is making it about the children or making it about somebody, uh, you know, some grand dramatic performance. Instead, Hopkins, uh, you know, uh, to, to use a, a term, has all his marbles, as he says at one point, I believe, uh, you know, for most of the film. And there's just all these strange happenings going on around him. And the moment I really clicked with this film um, was, you know, all I knew was Hopkins Coleman. When Olivia Williams comes in as the daughter and he's going, well, you're not my daughter. Oh, yeah, Dad, of course I am. I suddenly just, I was like, all right, I'll do whatever this movie wants. I'll follow this movie wherever it goes. This is brilliant. This is such a great conceit. This is such a great idea. And not only that, um, Anthony Hopkins has been known. Uh, if you guys listen to Blank Check, they always tell a story about uh, him circling pages in the script for no acting required. I This is his best performance in well over a decade. Um, you know, he's, he's so good. It's so deeply moving. It's so... Uh, incredibly felt um the the set design the production design is incredible because you do need to be able to move things around so quickly um it's such a journey and by the end it leaves you putting together pieces but all you know is that when hopkins talks about losing all his leaves uh, it's it's profound it's incredible um this is the perfect way to film a play it's extraordinary 
great cast, great performances. Um, this is a, a, an absolute surprise for me. Uh, and I have advocated to anybody, like, don't skip this one. This is extraordinary. And uh, uh, it gives me hope for the future. This is a movie that uh, I look at and go like, oh, we're in the 2020s. What's cinema going to be like? Oh, this is, I, I hope it's more like this. I hope we're trying new things. And this was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, this is my, you know, spoiler alert, my number one of the best picture nominees. Um, um, I think it's great. Um, I'll, I'll go even further than what Mike said. I think this is, Anthony Hopkins' best performance, um, mainly because, uh, hot take alert, I always found his uh, Hannibal to be slightly overrated by a lot of people. Um, it's great, but I still felt like, okay, relax, folks. Uh, I, this is an unbelievable performance by Anthony Hopkins. I mean, he kind of, like, it's so weird to say it, but he, like, in the last few years, he kind of came alive starting, it's so weird to say, in Transformers 5, where it's like, oh, he's having fun here. He's not just... <laughs> dutifully like saying the lines like he's actually having fun with this stupid robot movie and then he like comes back to life again in westworld and you're like oh anthony Hopkins, he's he's alive like he's 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 then this is just unbelievable work man i mean uh yeah it's the perfect way to film a play um the, the 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 cast all across the board is great playing different versions of the real people and then like his version of them and then just the the, the ending is just unbelievable. Um, it's for what is ostensibly a play. It's it it's visually gorgeous. Uh, probably I would go out on a limb. Yeah, say it's the best of these film stage plays this year. Um, uh, I saw a lot of people. I'm pretty sure Mike included in his letterbox. I think I don't remember uh, comparing this to uh, 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 the Charlie Kaufman movie. I'm st- uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. Uh, but um, this is what happens if you have a filmmaker that uh, hasn't lived up his ass for the last 40 years of his life and uh, wanted to write real characters and not just walking neuroses. Um, this movie is uh, not one I'm going to revisit anytime soon because uh, not really interested in getting reminders that uh, it's going to suck when I get old. Um, but this is uh, unbelievable. Uh I, yeah, I don't. I mean, I really don't know what else to say. I think it's just great. It's it's a movie you kind of just have to watch and let it like wash over you, just because it's so experiential. Uh, really getting you into what it would be like to tragically have to deal with this uh, affliction. Um, uh, it's it's uh, again another one where you're just like, fuck. Sad to say, Anthony Hopkins is going to get uh, his lunch money taken by Chadwick Boseman, but you know, Anthony Hopkins, I can't be mad that he's fucking nominated. He's fucking great. And, uh, whew, it's a movie, man. It's fucking, it's something else. I, I will just cop to the fact that, because I saw it, you know, as soon as the nominations came out, as soon as the movie was done, I messaged you and just went, go see this. Don't, I promise you it's not what you think it is. Don't look anything up. Just go see it. I, I wanted you to have this experience of, of just not knowing what you're getting yourself into. Because oh, I, yeah. I know, I know on the outset it had to look like a Philomena thing where you're just like, I'm not getting to that. Well, no, it's, it's 100% the thing, like, uh, you know, I, I didn't say this earlier in the episode, but, like, the, the the way this year went, I was so not, I was just ready to take a mulligan for this year and be like, whatever I see that's nominated, it's what I saw. And then all the stuff that's nominated, it's all shit that I'm like, all right, this is stuff that I do want to see, so fuck, I'll watch all of these, except for, <laughs> for The Father, because I'm like, oh, God, it's that movie, it's fucking, it's, uh, what's that stupid Glenn Close movie that got nominated, like, two years ago? The Wife? 
Yeah, oh, yeah. This is this year's The Wife, but The Wife is actually Anthony Hopkins. Although, to be fair, I would watch The Wife where Anthony Hopkins is the wife. Um, also, Tom, do you know The Wife is not about Alzheimer's? Tom, I know it's not about Alzheimer's. I know it's not. What is The Wife? I know it's about? not. I don't know a wife. <laughs> what, if, what if there was a wife? <laughs> no, I'm saying. I'm saying it's this year's Philomena. It's this year's The Wife. That movie that's just like, all right, somebody's aching for an Oscar nomination. Um, but this is not that because is it's it? actually, yeah. it's a, it's a good movie that's like really heartfelt and really tragic and really well executed and not just like the leftovers of the fucking era where Harvey Weinstein would just fucking get any goddamn thing nominated because people weren't dressed up like it's the 1800s and it's uh, based on a book and nobody ever has actually seen it. But no, this is not so. Al- that. So Albert Nobbs. The other yeah, Glenn Albert, Close. Yeah, another Glenn Close. Oh, oh you know what? I'm going to go out right on a limb and say it. You know what, Glenn Close? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I do not agree with that sentiment, and we'll get into that later. But, Kyle, did you see The Father? Because if not, we've ruined it for you, and I'm sorry. No, not at all. I, matter of fact, uh, you're the one who encouraged me to see it. It was the last one, the most recent one I saw. Uh, I was going to skip it. Uh, Mank and The Father were the last two. Um, I was prepared to see Mank and not the father and you texted me and were like, don't do that. Please watch it. Uh, go in blind. I think I only ended up watching one trailer just to have some sort of context. And then once I actually saw it, I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, I loved it. I don't know if it would be nominated in a traditional year, uh, but Anthony Hopkins, uh, as you guys have already said, best performance in years, um, absolutely kills it. Um, another example of a, uh, you know, bringing bringing the aspects of of theater and applying them to film uh, and executing it flawlessly. Um, yeah, it was a surprise, um, you know, that I was going to sleep on that I ultimately uh, ended up really enjoying. So yeah, yes, the uh, this is a triple threat. I think this is the only one that we've uh, agreed on uh, across the board that we've that we've liked this. So. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, we all liked, and and Minari yeah, to some degree. But no, this is the one where we're all just like, yeah, we're team the father. Yeah, no team, team the father. Yeah, yeah, team. We were, yeah, team. Sleep on the father yeah. turned into no, no. We stand. We, uh, we love it. And so with that, we only have one more nominated discussion. It's one that's been met with equal enthusiasm. Uh, yes. Everyone just, uh, everyone's just running. <laughs> everyone's running down to Lovers Lane and cornhole, and after they got all revved up about the trial of the Chicago Seven. So what? As what? What happened here that we started out? all on the same page of like let's just keep everything kind of uh, settled and we are now at the point where tom yelled lovers lane and cornhole and hey so- I the fucking movie i'm just saying the way people react to this goddamn movie it's like you think uh, like what you would think like they, you would think they were personally starting the fucking revolution in myanmar as as somebody who does not spend uh, enough time on film Twitter to go through the discourse uh, of of Oscar selections. Um, of these films, what would you say uh, was the most uh, divisive? I'll say this: Trial of Chicago Seven is not that divisive on film Twitter. Um, uh-huh. I, and I, I'll say this without getting too into it: uh, it's not that divisive on film Twitter. Film Twitter was kind of just like, yeah, it's an Aaron Sorkin movie, whatever. Like, it'll get nominated. It probably shouldn't. Uh, leftist Twitter furious at this movie. Very oh, mad. Okay. It's kind of which like, I don't get. I think th- I think this movie's ver- entire point 
is that you can't be a centrist and expect change. That's the well, entire because, fucking because, arc of um, what's Mumblemouth's name? What's his name? Because, I forget. Tom, Tom, because what happened in this movie is at some point somebody dared suggest that some of the methods applied by some of the people didn't work and therefore it's like well how it's like it's this is the problem with it it's um and i was discussing this with a different um uh, with a show with tom earlier this morning which is this thing of like you know uh, this this bizarre thing that we now have um uh which is the worst thing for art and art criticism uh you know i, I keep looking at this and how how uh certain parts of twitter just like even if something's on your side if it dares to question in any element of your ideology it must be rejected at all costs or if it dares to question maybe your approach is a little off you know you condemn it to death um you know it's uh which is uh the best way to watch art uh to be honest is to only find things that absolutely reflect everything that you believe and tells you you're doing a good job for believing it's the best way to consume art that's why everybody says godard's best work is when he went full-on ranting about socialism on camera all the time we love it um trial chicago 7 is fine it's fine. It's a good. It's, it's good. Fine. It's a Netflix movie. I, it's Aaron it has, Sorkin in, in in a trial. <laughs> it has points it wants to make. It doesn't make them great. It kind of makes them. I think that there's a a real conversation to be had about you know. I think the scene where, uh, you know, where uh, Eddie Redmayne and Sacha Baron Cohen uh, are talking. And it's like, hey, well, you know, your methods of levitating the Pentagon, they just represent the worst of us and they make us look silly to people. Who are you winning with that? And then Sacha Baron Cohen's like, yeah, well, you pretend to be Mr. Centrist, but then you throw a fist. And It's like it's that's a real conversation and a point to be made. Is it a frustrating movie because you look at it and go, man, if Steven Spielberg were directing this Aaron Sorkin script, this this thing would sing. Um, Sure. Uh, Do I think that it's a perfect film? No. Do I think that it's on the higher end this year? No. Uh, are there some good moments? Yeah. It's fine. It's everybody calm down. It's fine. It's, it's okay. Um, I promise. Uh, I, cause it's like, I saw you know, people were getting so mad about so many different things where they're like, well, but Abby Hoffman wouldn't have said exactly this, or he wouldn't have done exactly that, or, or this person wouldn't have done this. And it's like, guys, just take the movie for what it is. Take the movie for. The fact that it's kind of recognized, to me anyway, I like the fact that it's kind of acknowledging like, yeah, these guys got absolutely railroaded, but also you can't sum up the social movements of the 60s in one thing or one individual. There were so many different groups going on doing so many different things, some positive, some negative, and it was, you know, it inspired change, but it wasn't like there was one particular person leading everything. You know, or one particular ideology or one particular idea. And don't forget that a lot of these people, as that great little thing at the end points out, some of these people ended up becoming uh, real 80s yuppies. You know, Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker. Uh, you know, yeah, some people can be more opportunistic. Some people can be more ideological. Um, the, you know, that change and the push for change is complicated. Uh, and that just because you're on the right side of history doesn't mean you're a great person <laughs> or doesn't mean you're always right just because you're on the right side of history. These are uh, complicated themes, and I don't think that the film uh, lands all, all the way through. Um, but I, it's fine, guys. Relax. It's okay. It's just fine. Sorry. I just uh, calm down, Twitter. Tom, sorry, I, I, if I cut you off there, I absolutely cut you off. There. <laughs> I'm so upset. It's 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 fine. I, you know, I like it. I like it. 
it's it's not the best movie in the world. I mean, yeah, I think Aaron Sorkin should stop directing. Um, we were so close to this actually being directed by Spielberg, but I mean, I guess he had five other movies he had to make over a weekend. Um, it's it's good. I think the point it's ultimately making is being so weirdly overlooked by everyone because it doesn't like look right into the camera and say socialism is good it's like guys just fucking just whatever i think people need to grow the fuck up i think everyone <laughs> sucks and i'm i don't have much else to say. we're so burnt out by the chicago 7 discord i have I have no much, I have nothing else to add to except uh, Mark Rylance is the best and uh It's fine. Really? Michael Keaton's good in it. It's fine. It's yeah, fine, I mean I don't I don't know what else to say. I mean, yeah, I don't get what the fucking succession guy was doing in that movie. I mean was he auditioning for SNL? I don't know. But uh yeah, some stuff works, some doesn't. I I, I you know fuck man. <laughs> Next topic <laughs> So now that we're done with the Best Picture nominees, uh, let us give... Kyle, did you want to give your rankings absent Mank, or do you not want to do that at all? Uh, I mean, Mank, Mank by, you know, very definition saying, would be at the bottom. But I'm just saying, because... do you have a ranking, or if not, that's fine. I I do. Okay. I'm, pondering, I'm pondering if I need to make any last-minute switcheroos right. or anything um, like that. But... So I... Uh, I will. Who wants to give their ranking first? Tom, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. All right. Should we go? We'll go from eight to one. I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. Ascending. And then I will. I'll. I'll tack on at the end. Uh, you mean ascending? Eight to one. Uh, yeah. Excuse what? me. Ascending. There we go. Uh, and then I'll tell you guys uh, what I would put in, and then we'll get into the lower categories in a sec. Um. All right. So for me, it's not none of this is going to be surprising. I think based on how we've talked, my number eight is Mank. My number seven is The Trial of the Chicago Seven. My number six is Nomadland. My number five is Promising Young Woman. My number four is Judas and the Black Messiah. My number three is The Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. Uh, my number two is The Father, and my number one is Minari. Uh, in this case, if I could move some things around. Uh, I would swap out Mank for a film that was royally screwed this year, which is Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, uh, which would yep. absolutely be in this category. And then also, since you get up to 10 nominees, uh, Mank is replaced with The Five Bloods, and then I would also add in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Another Round. So if those were my 10 Best Picture nominees, I'd be as happy as a clam. Tom, what's your ranking? My ranking from 8 to 1 is Promising Young Woman, then Chicago 7, then Mank, then Nomadland, then uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, then Minari, then Sounds of Metal, and then The Father. If uh, I had my uh, just due, um, The Five Bloods is getting in there. We're taking Promising Young Woman after The the Five Bloods. Um, I would also take out Chicago 7, uh, excuse me, and put in another round and uh yeah i don't again i didn't like i said 2020 was kind of a uh like a you know a mulligan year so i uh, really don't have anything else i do but so uh put in the five bloods and another round take out promising young woman you got yourself a nice nine and kyle where do you stand on all this absent mank well- 
Uh, Absent Mank, which would take my number eight spot. Uh, and then uh, at number seven would be Trial of Chicago 7. Number six, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number five, Minari. Number four, Promising Young Woman. Number three, The Father. Number two, Nomadland, which leaves Sound of Metal at number one for my best picture. All right. Um, and uh, we are going to uh, take a, if it's okay with you guys, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will talk about the uh, other categories. All right, gang, we're going to talk about the other uh, categories, the other nominees. Now, uh, I've watched uh, every film nominated in every category uh, in prep for this because uh, I thought it'd be fun. I try and do this every year. Uh, I've been had a pretty good record with this. I think the, I think I, I missed one documentary in 2018, and uh, you know, I think the last Best Picture nominee I haven't, or the most recent Best Picture nominee I haven't seen is I still have not seen uh, Winter's Bone. I should get to that. But uh, has anybody seen Winter's Bone? Have either of you guys seen Winter's Bone? No, I think I owned the, it at one point, but never actually. Jennifer watched. Lawrence movie? Yeah, from yeah. Like 2010. Yeah, I seen it. it's good. I I didn't see it when it came out, and it's just like that. It's that one that's lingering there, so I should watch it. Um. Anyway, but I did see everything this year, so I'm gonna go through my rankings on the other categories, and Kyle and Tom will weigh in uh when they've seen them, when they when they're familiar. So we're gonna talk about best director. My ranking of the Best Director nominees is number five, David Fincher for Mank. Number four, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. Number three, Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round. Uh, number two, Chloe Zhao, Nomadland. And number one, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. Had I my druthers, I would swap out David Fincher for Spike Lee for The Five Bloods. Uh, where do you guys stand on the Best Director race this year? Who do you like? Who do you want to win? How would you put it? Well, uh, I've seen all of them. So I put my ranking as, uh, in ascending order, Emerald Fennell, um, David Fincher, Lee Isaac Chung, Chloe Zhao, and Thomas Vinterberg. Um, I would say take out Fennell for Spike and take out Fincher. Honestly, this is my just opinion of it. Uh, put in Nolan. For, for Tenet? Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I think, fuck man, I guess, I feel like Chloe Zhao's gonna win. I think that's yeah. the, the way the yeah, wind's blowing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess... that's where this is. That's fine. Not mad, I not like mad her a lot. It. No, I honestly, even even if I don't love the film, I'm happy that she's getting an Oscar. <laughs> I would have given it to her for the writer, so I'm good. Um, let's talk about Best Actor. Best Actor, uh, my ranking of the five. Uh, number five, Gary Oldman and Mank. Number four, Stephen Yun Minari. Number three, Anthony Hopkins, The Father. Number two, Riz Ahmed for The Sound of Metal. And number one, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, I, I, he's been winning all the precursor awards. He absolutely deserves to win this. It's the greatest tragedy in the world that when you watch Ma Rainey, you realize that, to me anyway, in the same way that like when you see uh, when Laurence Olivier would be on screen and you go, oh, this human being was born to deliver Shakespeare dialogue. He's He's born for this. Chadwick and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you're just like, oh, this 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 guy was made to do uh, August Wilson. Like, he just delivers this dialogue so flawlessly. And I will tell you, having seen August Wilson productions, it's hard. That dialogue is hard. There's a there's a rhythm and a precision to it. And he, he pulls it off flawlessly. He absolutely deserves to win this. It's a tragedy that, that he's not uh, with us. 
Um, if I could, I had my druthers. This one was tough. Four out of the five nominees I truly believe should be nominated. There are also two other people I think should be nominated, so I had a tough call. Uh, I'd swap out Gary Oldman and Mank, and I would put in Delroy Lindo and the Five Bloods, who should be in this category, should have been a contender this entire year. I really want Mads Mikkelsen to get recognized for another round, another movie that I love very much. But if I had to pick one, because I love the other four nominees, so I got to pick one to take that Oldman spot, it's Delroy Lindo. Uh, absolutely. He's incredible in the Five Bloods, should have been nominated. Um, so this is another category where I've got all of them down. My descending order is Oldman and Mank. You mean ascending uh, Steven, order? I keep doing that. God damn it. Just say the number, order. just say the numbers with the, 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 the nominees. It'll make it easier. Gary Oldman and Mank. Steven Young and Minari. Uh, uh, Riz Ahmed and Sound of Metal. Here's, here's where it's going to get twisty turny. Chadwick Boseman and Ma Rainey. And number one is Anthony Hopkins and The Father. Uh, obviously, Chad, obviously Chadwick's going to win. Um, like, like Mike, honestly, uh, I'm, I, I take Oldman out and I put, uh, Delroy in. I think Delroy, if Delroy was in, I think it would be a lot harder to say who was going to win this category because, um, in my mind, I think Delroy gives by far the best performance of last year. Um, but if I, but because I love Mads in another round so much, um, I think another. I I I think another round is the best movie nominated in general, in of all of this. I I wish it was in Best Picture. Um, so I would I'd have to sadly take out Stephen Young to give Mads Mikkelsen the uh, the nomination. Um, it wouldn't take too much away from Minari because it's got so much other coverage in other fucking categories. But um, after that wonderful dance, Mads gives uh, gives at the end of another round. I think he needs some sort of recognition. Um, but yeah, Chadwick's walking away with this and you know, I can't be mad about it. No, not at all. Extraordinary career, extraordinary performance. Best actress. Uh, this is a weird category, by the way, because I will, I'll tell you, uh, at least one of these films, not great. And another one questionable, but the performances are all very strong. I want to say that right off the bat, five very good performances. Um, but for me, uh, for Best Actress, I would put number five, Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman. Number four, Frances McDormand in Nomadland. Number three, Andra Day in The United States versus Billie Holiday. Number two, Carrie Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. And number one, Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. God, she's so good. Talk about another person who can just deliver uh, August Wilson dialogue. She's so very good. Um, She's done it before. (laughs) Yeah, and and won an Oscar for it before, and I would love to see her win an Oscar for it again. Um, Won a goddamn Tony for it before. (laughs) Yes. If I could move some things around, I would say, and again, I I like the performance even if I don't like it. I think Pieces of a Woman is a messy movie. It's a a strange choice. Uh, Extraordinary. The, The first maybe 10 minutes of Pieces of a Woman are extraordinary and some of the best filmmaking you'll ever see, and then it just goes off the rails in some weird directions. And United States versus Billie Holiday is... is uh, Andre Day is carrying that entirely, and she's incredible, and I'm so impressed. If I had to change things around, I would have to swap out Vanessa Kirby in favor of Sophia Loren in The Life Ahead. The movie The Life Ahead, which is uh, a new version of, if anybody remembers the film Madame Rosa, which is a French film, uh, it's an adaptation of the same novel, the film The Life Ahead is is solid, but Sophia Loren's performance in The Life Ahead is fantastic, and I, I do truly wish she had been nominated. I know there was a push for it, um, and I would have Sophia Loren in that category. 
Uh, so unfortunately, I have to bump Vanessa Kirby for that. But that's best actress. Um, yeah, this one I don't have everyone down. Uh, I didn't see United States vs. Billy Holiday because uh, it's a Lee Daniels movie, and I've learned my lesson. Um, and everything I've heard about Pieces of a Woman just sounded absolutely torturous. Uh, not in like, oh, this is bad, but in like, this is the kind of like screaming and straining for like where actor is kind of movie. Where I'm like, nah, don't need it. Not in the mood. It's um, weird. It just it also just introduces things throughout the film where it's like we don't need th- this was good enough and, as it was. And I like Vanessa Kirby, so I mean, you know, uh, whatever. I won't, uh, you know. So I can't. Of the three I've seen, it's I, I I'm going number three Carrie, number two Francis, and number one Viola. Uh, if you want an actual good uh, genre performance in this uh, uh, round of uh, actresses. Um, Elizabeth Moss in The Invisible Man, I think, is legitimately one of the greatest performances of the year. And, uh, uh, yeah, do that. Also, I forgot in Best Actor, even though I couldn't put him in with Mads and Delroy, I, I feel like I want to put a shout-out. Ben Affleck in The Way Back. He was amazing, and it's just such a great category of Best Actor this year that I couldn't even, like, take Gary Oldman out for him because you still got Delroy and Mads. But uh, there you go. Uh, okay. Yeah, Viola's winning, right? I hope I mean, to go. We don't. This is a very confusing race. There was a lot of talk that Carrie Mulligan would get it because, well, you know, Vanessa Kirby. This is new for her. Andre Day. This is one of her uh, early acting performances. I mean, before this, her biggest credit was Cars Three. So this was a big surprise because she's a musician primarily. Um, so that meant like, well, Viola's already got one. Francis has two. It seemed like Carrie Mulligan was a lock, but then Viola won the SAG award. So nobody knows. Actress and supporting actress are hard to predict, whereas actor and supporting actor are locks. And with that said, let's move on to supporting actor. Though I will say, folks, check out Life Ahead, Sophia Loren. Uh, best supporting actor, uh, where I put him, uh, number five, Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of Chicago 7. Number four, Leslie Odom Jr., One Night in Miami. Number three, Lakeith Stanfield, Judas and the Black Messiah. This one was tough because I love his performance, but number two, Paul Racy, Sound of Metal. Number one, Daniel Kaluuya, Judas and the Black Messiah. Just powerhouse performance. I talked about it enough. If I had my druthers, uh, there is one I would swap out. Ready for this? I would take out Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of the Chicago 7 and replace him with Roberto Benigni for his role as Geppetto in the Matteo Garon Pinocchio from this year. Roberto Benigni is very good in the Matteo Garon Pinocchio. He brings a real humanity to Geppetto, a character uh, often underserved. Um, Geppetto is a fairly minor character in other adaptations of Pinocchio, unless you watch the Drew Carey Geppetto movie from 2000 with Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the Blue Fairy. Uh, but this one, very grounded film. I love the Matteo Garon Pinocchio, and I am a big Roberto Benigni fan. Benigni is very good in this. Um, there was no world where he was getting nominated for it, but if I was in control, yes, Roberto Benigni would have that fifth supporting actor slot. Yeah, um, this is this is I've seen all the, the the nominees here. So my um, my number five is Sasha Baron Cohen in Trial of Chicago Seven. Um, <laughs> these other four though, then it's really tough. Um, so I got to go Leslie Odom Jr. One Night in Miami. Uh, I got to go uh, Lakeith and Judas. I got to go Daniel and Judas, and I got to go Paul Racy and Sound of Metal. I mean, if only, if only just for that scene, the big scene between the two of them. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And it's like one of those scenes where it's like this guy was like a struggling actor for decades and never really took off. Like this is a, this is the kind of role that like you would see 
Tarantino gives some older actor he saw in a movie like 15 years when he was like a 15 year old kid. And then they have a great rest of their career. This guy should be working the rest of his life after this performance because he is unbelievable. Um, Swapping out. I mean, this is another case of like, just because my deep bench isn't all that great this year. Cause I kind of just took, like I said, I took the mulligan. Uh, so, uh, I'm going to just, I'm just going to throw a fun one out here just cause I wish this movie had more nominations. I'm taking out Cohen. I'm, I'm giving it to, I'm giving it to our Pat for tenant. <laughs> It's it's my fun one. If you want to put fucking goddamn Pinocchio in there, I'm putting I'm putting Pattinson as uh, the happiest he's ever seen in a movie. What's What's funny is you're saying that, and yet I liked Tenet. Like, it, oh, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. I'm saying people listening would think, based on the tone and everything, that that I had the approach to Tenet that I thought I was going to have, and instead I blew your mind when I went, "This is fun. I like this movie." No, just because, like, that's not the movie that you would be like, oh, yeah, give it actor nominations. Yeah. It's just like, but yeah. you know what? Pattinson is so goddamn fun in that movie. And uh, although, ooh, Vince Vaughn and Freaky. No, I'm giving it to Pattinson. Okay. Um, supporting Actress. Another tough one. Um, so I'll put this out there. This is mine. Uh, number five, Amanda Seyfried in Mank. Uh, number four, Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy. And I want to be clear, I like Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy. I have a lot of problems with the movie. Guys, calm down. We don't need to dunk on it that much. It's good. She's giving a good performance. Um, but, you know, just compared to the other ones. So Glenn Close, number four, Hillbilly Elegy. Number three, Olivia Coleman in The Father. Number two, Yun Yujung for Minari. Number one. Maria Bakalova, uh, Borat's subsequent movie film. Uh, this was a, her getting nominated is an absolute miracle. A thing nobody thought was possible. I remember when New York Film Critics Circle gave her Best Supporting Actress, and I was flipping out because I was like, oh my God, this might actually, this could happen. Comedies don't get nominated. Um, very rarely, uh, especially for performances, uh, you know, uh, occasionally a breakout gets it. Occasionally you have a Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids get nominated. But what Maria Bakalova does in Borat's subsequent movie film is so remarkable. Um, you know, it's not just that, oh, she's very funny and nobody knew who she was, but the fact that she has to do so much improvisation, the fact that she has to keep in character this whole time, and the fact that she's able to play so many different layers. Um, again, uh, you know, the blank check guys talked about this too and acknowledged it, but like the Giuliani scene is so great because she simultaneously has to be playing a character to fool Giuliani, but also be playing a different character underneath it for the camera. She's, she's playing the fake reporter, but also she's playing Borat's daughter playing the fake reporter and having that sad emotion behind it. And that's a hard thing for actors to do. I mean, so often when you watch movies where a character's being deceptive, it's so obvious to the audience that they are. The performance is so big. She's doing so much. She's extraordinary in this film. Um, I I would not be upset if Yoon Yoo Jung won for Minari. I would not be upset if Glenn Close won for Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, but my number one is Maria Bakalova. And I don't have a swap for this category. I'm not overwhelmed by Amanda Seyfried and Mank the way that some people are. But yeah, this is a fine... Set of five. Uh, I, I leave this as is. That's where I am on supporting actress. 
Uh, supporting actress. Only one I haven't seen is uh, Hillbilly Elegy. So I'm going to say my number four is Say Free to Mank. Number three is going to be Coleman and the Father. Number two is Bakalova and Borat. Number one is Yu Young Yun in Minari. Uh, I think the grandmother is a great character. I love what she does with that. Um, uh, I think Bakalova is great also, but like I just really find it so annoying that Borat 2 is getting all these nominations. Um, yeah, I mean, again, not uh, not much for me. Again, with the lack of options, I got to throw in a supporting. But uh, yeah, man. Uh, I, I I guess that's that would be my four. So and, best and original, best original screenplay. Uh, here's where I'm at. Number five, The Trial of Chicago Seven. Number four, Promising Young Woman. Number three, Minari. Number two, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number one, Sound of Metal. Uh, just, I mean, I, I I like a lot of these scripts, but Sound of Metal is the one that just. You know, there's great performances that make that film work. It's a lot that makes it work, but a lot of that is on the page. Just what a great, brilliantly crafted script. Uh, if I had my druthers, I would swap out Trial of the Chicago 7 for a movie I certainly didn't expect to like this year, but think was great. I would swap out Trial of the Chicago 7 for Palm Springs. Palm Springs, it's on Hulu. Uh, the one-two punch of finally watching Popstar this year and uh, watching Palm Springs has made me reevaluate my my very negative feelings on Andy Samberg and made me want to revisit a lot of his stuff. Um, this was a tough year for comedy. I like Borat's subsequent movie film, but other than that, the comedies that got praised this year, uh, I don't trust you people anymore on film Twitter. I don't trust you guys. You guys got real, real hyped up about things like Hubie Halloween and Eurovision Song Contest, and Barb and Star, like, real into it, as though it was, like, you know, the, the resurrection of, of, of Billy Wilder. And I don't trust you guys anymore. They were fine. You were laugh-starved. But Palm Springs, despite doing the Groundhog Day thing, brilliant. I loved Palm Springs, and I think that script absolutely uh, deserved recognition this year. So I chop out Trials Cargo 7 for Palm Springs. Okay, so... This is a, uh, yet another one that I I got all of them. So, number five for me, Promising Young Woman. Number four, Trial of the Chicago 7. Number three, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, Minari. Number one, Sound of Metal. Yeah, Sound of Metal. It rules. That script gives Riz all of the, the, the work, all the stuff he needs to make that, sh- uh, sing- that thing shine and soar. Um, uh, knocking Promising Young Woman out for um, another round. Which I think is the would win if you know if that would be my number one if it was in that original screenplay category because the another round script is uh, fantastic and uh, I mean otherwise yeah I think that's a pretty pretty good uh, selection there best adapted screenplay I have some real hangups with this category so we'll get into that. Um... So, best adapted screenplay. My number five is Nomadland. My number four is Borat's subsequent movie film. My number three, a real surprise, The White Tiger. This movie rules. It's on Netflix. It's marketed terribly. It's not what you think it is. My grandmother recommended it to me, which made me concerned that it would be another, like, treacly feely film. White Tiger rules. White Tiger goes hard. White Tiger... Check out White Tiger, everybody. Uh, My number two... 
which I thought was going to be my number one. My number two is One Night in Miami, and my number one is The Father. Uh, we've talked enough about The Father. Let me just say, I have some hang-ups with some of these nominations. Um, the nominations for Nomadland and Borat's subsequent movie film perplex me. Nomadland is at least a quarter, if not more, made up of real people's real stories. Uh, and Borat is the majority of the film improvised. Even if you yeah, like the scripted uh... parts in it, there are other whole screenplays you could have picked. What a weird choice. Um, yeah, quite Not odd. a fan. So, I'm pulling um... both of those out, and I like Borat's subsequent movie film, but I'm pulling both of those out, and for me, I'm swapping out Nomadland and Borat's subsequent movie film for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and a movie that I came to love this year, uh, News of the World. Really like News of the World. Um, so that would be the two that I put in that category, and that would be my five adapted screenplay. Uh, so four, haven't seen the White Tiger. Uh, so my four rankings would be number four, Borat, number three, Nomadland, number two, excuse me, number three, One Night in Miami, number two, Nomadland, number one, The Father. Um, like we said, can't praise The Father enough. Um, yeah, absolute deranged that Borat subsequent movie film is nominated. I, like again, this is the shit that I'm just like, why like what the hell happened that that everyone just thought, yeah, let's give Borat all these nominations that kinda shouldn't have. Um so I'm snatching that some bitch out of there. And uh what for one of like legitimately the best, most well structured fucking screenplays I've seen since like Zemeckis's Back to the Future, that fucking first movie. Lee Winnell's the Invisible Man. That's one of the most airtight, like lands every goddamn hit and is so thematically like just on point where you just go wow this should be taught in schools like what wow this is unbelievable but uh other than that yeah uh, i i i uh, don't don't have the date bench knowledge to swap anything else in for nomadland (laughs) best animated feature um best animated feature five interesting nominees different nominees uh the way i'd rank them number five onward Number four, Shaun the Sheep, Farmageddon. Number three, Over the Moon. Number two, Soul. Number one, Wolf Walkers. I actually like all these movies. Um, they all have something interesting going on. Um, I find uh, my first viewing of Onward, I, I, I struggled with a little bit, and then I listened to the commentary from the director, and I, I you know, I, I know that people have pointed out that Onward might have some structural issues. I find that ending very, very moving. Um, Sean the Sheep Farmageddon, great. The Sean the Sheep movies are a lot of fun. Uh, our, our dear friend and past guest, Vice Victus, advocates for them very hard. Sean the Sheep Farmageddon, a lot of fun. Uh, Over the Moon has not been seen a lot. Uh, it's a Netflix movie. Uh, I hope people check it out. It's a former Disney animator making a traditional musical animated film, uh, computer animation uh, based on Chinese folklore. Very, very good. I, I suggest people check it out. Ken Jeong has a musical number. It's fascinating. Soul, I had a blast with. I know there was a lot of discourse because there's always discourse um, in the in the waning days of the pandemic. Um, the Soul discourse came at the heel of the Wonder Woman 84 discourse. It was a whole thing. Um, but I thought Soul was great. I really enjoyed the idea of exploring um, what do you get when you get what you, what do you have left when you get what you want. But at the end of the day, I have been a huge fan of Cartoon Saloon. Uh, these are the, the same animation company, an Irish animation company that has done Irish folklore movies like uh, The Secret of Kells, which was extraordinary, and Song of the Sea. Uh, Wolf Walkers is, is just incredible. Um, 
I, I, I got emotional watching it. I get emotional thinking about it. Um, it is a beautiful depiction of Irish folklore. It is, um, it, it's just an incredible film. It's on Apple TV, which makes it a little harder for some people, but it's worth it. Just do the free trial and watch it. And, and then I don't know, get caught up on Ted Lasso. So everybody on Twitter will stop scolding you for not seeing it. Um, that's the five. That's where they're at. What was I going to swap in guys? Scoob, the crudes too. No, this is a good five. This is about the best five you were going to get for an animated feature this year. Uh, I only saw Onward and Soul. Uh, Onward, it's it's it exists. Um, Soul, pretty good. Kind of wish it was able to withhold from de- devolving into kind of typical Pixar two mismatched buddies on the road kind of movie that uh, it becomes when Cat uh, gets involved. But uh, beginning's great, ending's great. So you know, also. One of the best Nick's jokes I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> that was so good. Uh, so yeah, I haven't seen the other three. And again, yeah, what what am I gonna fucking like? What am I gonna kneecap onward to put in? Yeah, like Scoob. You, what am I? Do you have Apple TV, it? Tom? Yeah, because I saw all of Ted Lasso, Wolf. and I'm going to scold you for not seeing Ted Lasso because it is a delight. Wolf Walkers, great, great stuff. Wolf Walkers. It's about wolf people hunting wolves, people becoming wolves. Some uh, aggressive. Liam Neeson esque characters is a good time. Wolf Walker's rules. Um Best International Film. Uh another one where I watched them all. Uh and I will say good set of nominees. Good, good set of nominees this year. Uh normally there are some some clunkers, and I know there's some some that are divisive. Uh so I'm gonna talk about them a little bit because there's a good chance that most people uh listening might not have seen most of these. My number five is The Man Who Sold His Skin. It's a Tunisian film. Um very interesting plot. It's a you know it's about a man who's a Syrian uh, refugee, wants to go to Belgium, um, can't get out of his country uh, until a famous artist comes along and determines, if I tattoo a work of art on your back, I can get you out of the country because uh, the local, you know, uh, the world respects the uh, transit rights of inanimate objects that are works of art more than they uh, respect the rights of human beings. So it's easier to get you out of this country if I make you into a work of art than it is for you to be a human being. And so he takes this man on an exhibition tour with this art tattooed on his back and the dehumanizing experience of that. It's, it's very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Number four is Collective, which is a Romanian documentary about the fallout of a nightclub fire and government corruption in healthcare, uh, which is also a very interesting thing. If you like documentaries, this feels like, a, again, this feels like a Tom movie. It's investigative journalism on film. It's on Hulu. Uh, I hope you like it. Uh, number three, Better Days, a Hong Kong film that I was very surprised by. Uh, it was controversial because apparently the Chinese government didn't want it getting out at first. It is truly based on a YA novel. It is a young adult movie uh, that is the typical story of like, She's the girl who's a good student and just wants to get into a good college, but she falls for a boy from the wrong side of the tracks. And he's a bad boy who lives on the street, but he looks after her. And it's like, I was so stunned that this is a teen movie that got an Oscar nomination because it's surrounded by a very gripping depiction of uh, school suicides and the, the high pressure of parents and, and uh, the, the criticisms of the Chinese government. It's a very smart film. It's a very engaging film that is still uh, inside the the trappings of a YA movie. Uh, very touching film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I know it's divisive, but I, I like Better Days a lot. Uh, my number two is Quo Vadis, Quo Vadis Aida. 
um, which is a Bosnian film uh, based on the the Bosnian genocide and the failure of the UN to protect people. Um, very gripping, very hard to watch drama, very tense, moves uh, like a rocket. But my number one, we've been talking about it a lot. I was blown away by another round. Um, I had seen Thomas Vinterberg's other films. I had seen The Hunt and uh, I had seen parts of Festin or Celebration. Um, uh, but I was just so impressed by this movie. I think it's an extraordinary uh, depiction of uh, how we're willing to delude ourselves and over-intellectualize our self-destructive behaviors. Um, Tom and I have talked about this movie a lot since we've seen it. Um, some Sometimes we have very different takes on it, which just shows you how good this movie is. Mads is great. The movie's great. Uh, it's probably going to win. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Really like it. If I was going to swap things out, though, uh, I would swap out The Man Who Sold His Skin for La Llorona. It is a horror film. It's the, the, probably the first time a Shudder exclusive has been shortlisted um, uh, for uh, for uh, any Oscar. Uh, Guatemalan film, very, very good, very uh, tense. Um, I don't want to say anything more about it. Check it out. It's on Shudder. If you have Shudder, it's very good. I would also swap out Collective for a different foreign documentary, a movie I loved this year we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, which is the Chilean film The Mole Agent, which is very, very charming. Uh, but that's how I would put it. Uh, that's that's those. Uh, yeah, only seen another round <laughs> of these. Uh, it's great. Um, so kind of, I don't know, I guess disingenuous to say I'd swap anything else in, but um, I uh, haven't seen La Llorona, even though that would probably be something I'd pick. Um, I'd say put in the Brazilian Baccarat, um, this crazy Brazilian, I believe, uh, just weird, like seven samurai riff, like that's like dipped in acid. Uh, there's like a big segment in the middle of it where all the villagers are like getting high and like getting ready for the in- incoming invasion set to one of, uh, the tracks from John Carpenter's lost themes, which was like, okay, yeah, you're right up my goddamn alley. But, um. Yeah, I would have put that in. Uh, also, this fucking... Um, I guess this gets into the weird things with everything here, but um, even if it couldn't be nominated, I feel like I want to mention Mosul, uh, this Netflix original uh, set in uh, the Iraq about um, this uh, kind of brutal uh, police force that just goes around killing the terrorists without any sort of like oversight uh it's pretty great uh but otherwise yeah that's my contributions to this uh worldly topic i i'm trying to figure out and i i don't mean to be uh getting too into the weeds with this but i'm trying to figure out why there's a part of me that thinks baccarat was shortlisted last year um let me see not that anybody listening gives a, a shit right now. Um, yeah, so that's... Because that's the tricky thing. I'll say this for anybody who cares. The tricky thing is that every country gets to pick what gets submitted as their film. Yeah. So you can't... You know, it's not about a matter of votes. It's just who who picked it. Or what country... Uh, you know, what, what the country selected as their film. No, Bakura was not... Uh, was not even submitted. Uh, Brazil's submission this year was a movie called Babenko, Tell Me When I Die. And what was the other one you said? Mosul? What country was that? Uh, yeah. 
Um, that's the thing. I don't. It's all in a foreign. It's all in the language. But I think I think it might be an American movie because fucking Joe Carnahan's brother directed it and wrote it. So I don't know um, what the. Well, if it's in a foreign language, that's that's mostly what matters in the country. No, yeah, United States. Okay, so that's not getting. Yeah, uh, so I'll just I'll, I'll just uh, say it. People should see it. It's a, it's in another language, which might be a problem for some people. But if you're listening to the show, uh, I really hope it's not. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's a good fucking movie. All right. Uh, next up, uh, best documentary. We'll get through these quick uh, now. But best documentary. Uh, my number five is probably the most divisive of the documentaries, um, which is My Octopus Teacher. That's a love or hate movie. Uh, I know I've been uh, members of my family have loved it. I find it weird and off-putting. Uh, to me, it's a it's a film about a rich white guy centering himself in a story about an octopus. It would be great if it wasn't for all the times it cuts to him talking about how much the octopus taught him. Uh, it's very it's a it's a divisive film. So my octopus teacher's number five. Number four is Collective. Number three is Crip Camp, which has a chance at winning. I think. Uh, especially because it comes from the Obama's production company who did last year's winner, American Factory. Crip Camp is the extraordinary true story of a camp in the 60s for uh, young people with disabilities that uh, brought together a bunch of extraordinary uh, young people who would go on to shape the disability rights movement uh, going forward. Uh, Definitely recommend folks check that out. It's on Netflix. Very interesting story. My number two is Time, which is on Amazon Prime, a remarkably done uh, film that's coming to the Criterion Collection that chronicles one woman's journey to get her husband released from prison and uses copious amounts of home footage to remind you about the passage of time that our destructive prison industrial complex uh, robs so many people of. But my number one is the Chilean film The Mole Agent, an absolutely charming documentary you can find on Hulu uh, about uh, allegations of elder abuse in a nursing home leading to a detective hiring an 80-year-old man to be a mole at the nursing home uh, to discover if there's any wrongdoing going on. And it ends up being a very charming, sweet, and very funny movie about uh, people in the, in the final uh, autumn years of their lives and how we treat people who are older than us. If I had my druthers, I would swap out my octopus teacher for one of the best documentaries this year. Uh, Dick Johnson is dead, which I highly recommend folks check out on Netflix. Dick Johnson is dead. Um, very, very good film. I don't want to say anything about it, but look it up. Dick Johnson is dead. Um, I'm Tom. I'm assuming you don't really have any thoughts on documentaries this year. I haven't seen any of them, and don't really feel comfortable saying, "Uh, take one yeah. of these out for uh, Belushi." Yeah. Uh, so I'll just breeze through these these shorts categories because I know that's not really your bag this year. Is that okay? Uh, let me just double check. And yes, all the shorts I have not seen, so yeah. you are yeah. Uh, yeah. free to go. Okay, best documentary short. Here's where I put it. Uh, actually, not a bad uh, bunch. In fact, I watched all the shortlisted documentaries this year, all 10. Pretty good. Pretty good crop. Uh, number five, I would put A Concerto is a Conversation. Number four, Do Not Split. Number three, Colette. Number two, Hunger Ward. And number one, A Love Song for Latasha. Love Song for Latasha really sticks out to me because as Tom knows and I've talked about before, I have a lot of problems with true crime stuff and true crime documentaries because they really minimize... Um, and rob agency of the victims in favor of sensationalism. Love Song for Latasha talks about the uh, horrific shooting that uh, many attribute to kicking off uh, the the LA riots uh, or in a, and a rising tension um, between Asian Americans and African Americans. And this movie centers uh, the victim of that shooting, Latasha, and shows you 
who she was and who she could have been. Um, it's a remarkable film. Beautiful, beautiful film that I really, really hope wins. If I had my druthers, I would swap out a concerto with a conversation for a documentary short called The Speed Cubers that I thought was very charming. And Do Not Split, I would swap out for a doc short called Hysterical Girl, which I recommend folks check out. I believe it's still up on YouTube, which recontextualizes uh, Freud's famous diagnosis of a female patient with hysteria uh, in a modern day context by actually giving her a voice in the form of an actress offering rebuttals. Best live action short. Uh, my number five is Feeling Through. My number four is The Letter Room. My number three, White Eye. Number two, The Present. Number one, Two Distant Strangers. The Letter Room is most likely going to win this category because it has Oscar Isaacs in it. It has Alia Shawkat. It's a bigger production. But Two Distant Strangers really stuck out to me. Uh, rapper Joey Badass stars in it and is very good. It's a fun twist on the... on the, Well, not fun. It's a grim, playful twist on Groundhog Day. I don't want to give anything else away, but Two Distant Strangers is worth checking out. Had I my druthers, though, while I like feeling through a lot, and I love the performance of the deafblind actor in it, which is the first time a deafblind actor uh, has been the lead in a film of any kind. Um because it's the lowest on my list, I have to swap it out in favor of a, a short that I'm shocked isn't nominated, which is The Human Voice. Uh, Pedro Almodovar made a short this year with Tilda Swinton that absolutely rules. Animated short. We're going to talk about this real quick. Animated short. My number five is Yes People. My number four is Burrow. Number three, Genius Losi. Number two, Opera. And number one, the heart-wrenching Netflix animated short, If Anything Happens, I Love You which depicts parents grieving a daughter who dies in the school shooting. Uh, it is uh, an incredible short. It is not for um, everyone. It's, it's, a, it's, it's tough watch, but it's very, very good. Uh, I didn't much care for Yes People, so if, uh, if I could, I would swap that out for Out, which is my favorite Pixar uh, spark short probably of all the ones they've done, which is about a, uh, a man uh, afraid to come out of the closet to his parents uh, who ends up switching places with his dog. <clears throat> Real quick, let's breeze through these, because I think our listeners' eyes are probably glazing over as we get into the technical categories. Uh, production design. In terms of production design, my number five is Tenet. My number four is Mank. Number three, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number two, News of the World. Number one, The Father. And in this case, I would swap Tenet for Matteo Garon's Pinocchio. All right. Haven't seen News of the World. Can't knock that one out for anything, but I will go Mank, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Tenet, Father is number one, and uh, production design, yeah, really can't, uh, don't really, mm, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. All right. Cinematography. Uh, My number five is Trial of the Chicago 7. My number four is Mank. Number three, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, Nomadland. And number one, News of the World. I love News of the World. Uh, in this case, I would swap out Trial of Chicago 7 in favor of Tenet, and I would swap out Mank in favor of Minari. All right. Um, haven't seen News of the World, like I just said, so I will say number four, Trial of Chicago 7. Number three, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, Mank. Number one, Nomadland. Wow, excuse me. I would still keep News of the World because it's Darius Wolski. I'm sure it looks amazing. So I'm taking out Trial of Chicago 7 for, like Mike, I'm taking it out for Tenet. And, uh, yeah, no uh, other, uh, no swaps there. Best oh, wait, excuse co- me, excuse me, uh, excuse me. Uh, gotta take it, I'm sorry, gotta take out uh, Mank for the Five Bloods. Yeah, okay. Uh, number, uh, best costume design. My number five is Mank. My number four is Emma. 
Number three, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number two, Pinocchio. Number one, Mulan. Uh, part of my thing with costume design, and I'll just admit this right up front, I'm not a costume designer, I'm not on the voting board, but one of my hang-ups tends to be, I don't love when costume design is a category that features some uh, costume designs that had to be made up whole cloth based on uh, nothing else uh, but your imagination, uh, and they end up losing to something where somebody went, oh, hey, we wore these coats three or four decades ago. Let's recreate these coats. It's a weird thing for me. I have hang-ups about that. If you can replicate photographs, it's it's less impressive to me than if you have to make something up whole cloth, but I get why other people feel differently. In this case, I would swap Mank for the motion picture Birds of Prey or the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, a movie that uh, I think deserved more recognition this year. Fun, inventive, great look, great redesign of all these characters. Um, haven't seen Mulan, haven't seen Pinocchio, but I've laid eyes on what they look like, so uh, can't really be mad about Mulan. Uh, but my three would be Mank. My two would be Ma Rainey. Number one would be Emma. I mean, if there's anything that movie's fucking made for, it's costume design. Um, I'm swapping out Pinocchio for Birds of Prey. Um, uh, gonna swap out, gonna swap out Mank for. If I want people in nice suits, I'm going with Tenet, baby. God, because ooh, does John David Washington look good in that suit? Oh Lord. Okay. Uh, best makeup and hairstyling. Uh, number five, Mank. Number four, Hillbilly Elegy. Number three, Emma. Number two, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And number one, undeniably, Pinocchio. The rest of these nominees are putting makeup on people to either make them look old-timey or make them look old. Pinocchio had to make a boy look like he was made out of wood, make someone look like a slug person, and make someone look like a fox and a cat. Guys, do not give this to Mank when Pinocchio worked so hard. All right, if I had my druthers, I would swap out Mank for Birds of Prey, or the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, and I would swap out Hillbilly Elegy for another really charming film, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Tale. It was shortlisted for a couple things. Great little Netflix musical. Uh, I think it deserved recognition. All right, like I said, haven't seen Pinocchio, haven't seen Hillbilly Elegy. I've seen Emma, Ma Rainey, and Mank. I'd put it Mank, Ma Rainey, and Emma as number one. Uh, I'm taking Hillbilly Elegy out, and I also am putting in Birds of Prey. Uh, I'm taking Pinocchio out and uh, putting in something that... uh, Possessor. Anybody that's seen Possessor and sees the insanity that David Cronenberg's son managed to pull off in that movie uh, makes you really wish they respected genre more. But uh, yeah, there you go. But again, in fairness, you have not seen Pinocchio. But I know it makes you mad. God damn it. We're getting to that part of the night, everybody. Okay. If anybody has stuck around this late in the podcast. All right. Best original score. Uh, my number five is Mank. My number four is The Five Bloods. My number three, News of the World. Number two, Soul. Number one, Minari. I know Soul is going to win this, and I'm happy to get Trent Reznor another Oscar. Uh, but Minari's score has stuck with me. If I could change anything, I would swap out Mank in favor of... Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. Did I call it A Christmas Tale earlier? I absolutely did. Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. Alrighty. Uh, That's that's your score. That's your druthers. Uh, So News of the World is not on my list. So I'm going number four. Uh, Number four to five bloods. Number three, Soul. Number two, Minari. Number one, Mank. Sorry, I do. I think Trent and Atticus did better on Mank. Um... But if I'm taking anything out, I'm taking out 
Uh, I'm going to put something in, in place of News of the Worlds just so I have five that I said I could see. For Tenet, I think what uh, that guy, uh, what's his name, Ludwig? I don't, I don't recall. Kugler's uh, uh, guy uh, did amazing work uh, getting Nolan out of the typical Hans Zimmer thing, even though Hans Zimmer's done good shit for him. But uh, I love the, the, the score in Tenet. All right, best original song. I will tell everybody this is probably one of the worst years for best original song in a while. Um, you know, oh, probably since the me. year writing on, probably uh, probably since uh, the year writings on the wall one, where it was just like whatever wins we lose. Uh, my biggest hang up is the fact that three of the five nominees could be put at the end of any of those three films. Uh, I think if you blindfolded somebody and you said, "All right." fight for you speak now or hear my voice what's the title of the song at the end of trial of chicago 7 they're not getting it um i i don't dislike all those songs um i think speak now which is the one night miami song suffers most from uh the fact that leslie odom jr had just gotten done singing a change is gonna come one of the greatest songs ever written in the history of music and that kind of feels like somebody just finished doing uh a Shakespeare monologue and then goes, now who wants to hear one? I wrote, uh, it's tough. It's, it's not good for anything, but, um, yeah, rough category this year. So out of the nominees, uh, my number five is hear my voice from trial of Chicago seven. My number four is speak now from one night in Miami. My number three fight for you from Judas and the black Messiah. My number two, Husevik from Eurovision song contest, the story of fire saga. And my number one, the only song I would be happy to see win EOC or scene from the life ahead. If I had my druthers, I would swap out hear my voice for make it work from jingle jangle, a Christmas journey. And I would swap out speak now for rain song from Minari. Uh, I just roll into best sound Tom, or do you have thoughts on the songs? Honestly, I really don't have thoughts on the songs. Uh, Glad I'm not the only one that thought this kind of category sucks. So um, I'll just go ahead and say the only one I kind of even remember and liked is Husevik. I mean, you know, it's it's there. It's not something slammed at the end of a movie. Uh, it's not the one in One Night in Miami, which is just the most blatant, please give us an Oscar in the song category I've ever seen. Um, yeah, Husevic, there you go. Cute enough. Uh, all right, we're going to bang through these real quick uh, for these last couple. Uh, best sound. This is a tough one because this is, I think, the first year they've merged the category. In the past, it was sound editing and sound mixing, which were different categories. And, it's a tie. Uh, and I go, oh my God, one of our favorite Oscar moments when, when Mark Wahlberg presenting alongside CGI Ted went, it's a tie. No BS, it's a tie. And what was it? Oh, no, it was, it was, the worst thing is I can tell you which ones it was, right? It, I believe, unless I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, um, somebody please write a three page notes app, uh, fact check, um, if I'm wrong. But, uh, I believe it was Skyfall tied with Zero Dark Thirty. And I remember that right. because, because Ted, the CGI bear was presenting and read it as zero Dak deity. Uh, anyway, best sound this year is one category combined, which makes it harder for me to judge. Cause I'm not sure if we're judging sound effects or sound mixing or what, but here's my picks based on that confusion. My number five is mank. My number four is soul. My number three is news of the world. My number two is greyhound. My number one sound of metal. Do I have anything to swap? No, because I, I don't really know the parameters. And uh, as impressive as Tenet is in so many ways, any human being that tells me that a Christopher Nolan movie has mastered sound mixing will be out of their mind. So that's where I put him. Uh, any thoughts yeah, on I sound, mean, Tom? 
Uh, didn't see Greyhound, didn't see News of the World. So my number three is Soul. My number two is Mank. My number one is Sound of Metal. Uh, I mean, I don't know how The Five Bloods doesn't get nominated for this. It's a goddamn war movie, but okay. Yeah. Um, so, best film editing. My number five is Nomadland. My number four is The Trial of the Chicago 7. My number three is Promising Young Woman. My number two is Sound of Metal. And my number one is The Father. Uh, that movie relies heavily on precision editing. And uh, I think it absolutely nails it. I have nothing to swap in here because, I don't know, guys, these last three categories, what am I swapping in? It's, it's, that, that's my pick for editing. Uh, okay, I've seen all of these. So, uh, number five, Promising Young Woman. Number four, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Number three, Nomadland. Number two, Sound of Metal. Number one, The Father. Like you said, Father is all about the editing and all that shit. Um, taking out Promising Young Woman, uh, and putting in Tenet, because if there's anything you give that movie fucking credit for, it's making that shit kind of make sense. Uh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, you take out Trial of Chicago 7, put in The Five Bloods. There you go. Last category, Best Visual Effects. Uh, my number five is Mulan. My number four, Love and Monsters. Number three, The Midnight Sky. Number two, The One and Only Ivan. And number one, Tenet. Uh, I gotta give it to Tenet. Uh, Tom just said in the last one, if you give it to anything, it's editing. But to me, if you give Tenet anything, it's gotta be visual effects. Um, even though I'm very impressed by The One and Only Ivan, not just the effects, that movie is an absolute charmer. It's, uh, it it came out on Disney Plus, uh, in the early days of the pandemic. Check it out. One and Only Ivan. Very cute. Very good. Uh, I don't have anything to swap in here because I looked at the shortlist of visual effects nominees and, who boy. Uh, you got things like Bloodshot in there. I think Mank was shortlisted visual effects. What are we doing, guys? Uh, so that's my ranking of the visual effects. <laughs> Only saw a tenant of these because uh, I've learned my lesson about George Clooney-directed movies. Mulan costs 30 bucks, and so no thank you. Haven't heard of the one and only Ivan and Lover Monsters. I do actually want to get to. Uh, so Tenet, I mean, like Mike said, what else are you going to give it anything for? It, that shit is unbelievable. Uh, wh- I mean, wh- what else do you swap in? I mean, uh, fuck, I don't know. Underwater. Yeah, it wasn't even shortlisted. Uh, all right. Bastards. And with that, guys, if you've made it this far, which I doubt most people have, because this is long, that is our 2021 Oscar talk. If you enjoyed it, please let us know. If you really enjoyed it, please rate and review the show. It really helps us, especially because uh, after we finish season one, we'll be on a bit of a hiatus and we're relying on uh, you, our listeners, to help spread the word about this show in the meantime. And rating and reviewing on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice really helps. If you found yourself going, enough of this talk of modern movies. I'm sick of it. Talk to me about the classics. Talk to me about the canon. Talk to me about what the show is supposed to be about. Don't worry. Next week, we will be back talking about Buster Keaton's The General, which is in the public domain, so you can find on our YouTube channel or wherever you watch your movies. That one's going to be a lot of fun. We have a very exciting guest lined up for that and something that's going to be a real emotional thing for Tom and I. And then... We are wrapping up with talking about what is considered the greatest film of all time. The week after that, we will be doing Citizen Kane, uh, which you can find on HBO Max or wherever you rent your movies. And then we will do a nice little wrap-up final episode the week after that. So I hope you guys stick around. And for those of you who have been listening uh, all along, thank you for sticking with us this whole time. This is a lot of fun. Uh, We're excited to see who wins on this very unusual Oscar night. So thanks for joining us, everybody. (laughs) 